Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday, February, February 2nd, 843-661937, our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Um, The dumb month is two days old, only 27 days left. And the dumb month is even dumber because you'll have 20-degree days and you'll have 80-degree days in the dumb month. How can you have that extreme a weather change in one single short not the same day every year, month. I mean, I'm not saying God had a bad day because God didn't create the calendar, right? I mean, the heavens and the earth and the sunrise and the sunset. But um, man, man decided on January, February, March, April, May. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, question of the morning. You ready? We spent a few moments every morning talking about sports. We ended our conversation yesterday morning about sports, uh, trying to make a determination on what is the moment in time or the single event that transformed athletics into big business. We were talking specifically about college sports, talking about NIL and colleges and raking in revenue and not paying the employees. And I I argued that if I didn't have to pay welders and truck drivers as a truck body manufacturing business, there's a good chance I could have been more successful and honored as businessman of the year. 100 consecutive years. I'd have won more businessman of the year than Tom Brady won Super Bowls. There's a sports reach because um, I don't have to pay welders. I don't have to pay. I still got to buy my steel. I still got to turn the lights on to pay the power. But I don't have to pay welders, and I don't have to pay truck drivers. I like my chances if I'm in the truck body business. Oh, sure makes not business a lot easier. So Bad Boy text us. I mean, Bad Boy does our, our sports show in the mornings from 7 until 10. 10. Three hours a morning uh, starts an hour later, but is um for the sports enthusiast. Our ESPN sister station has a um a local oriented sports show. Uh, he texted me during the broadcast yesterday and said the day that CBS came up with March Madness, and I think Brent Musburger did that. I think Brent Musburger in one of the broadcasts of college basketball's NCAA tournament said it's the madness of March. It's March Madness. Some Cinderella upset, um, you know, the um, the 800-pound gorilla. The uh, And I'm talking about Coppin State and Kentucky. I would say Coppin State and South Carolina. That really happened. That's not a blue blood and a Cinderella. That would be a Cinderella and somebody can maybe a notch above a Cinderella at that particular time. But it would be like the 16 seed beating the 1 seed, the 15 seed beating the 2 seed, um, Villanova beating Georgetown for the championship when Billy Packer famously said, you ready? With nine minutes to go in the game, Billy Packer said, Villanova can't miss another shot and win this game. Villanova didn't miss another shot and won the game. I think they were 11 for 11 from the field down the stretch. And that would have been the Georgetown team with Patrick Ewing. You know, John Thompson was the coach. But bad boy may be right. I mean, that may be the... I don't know the moment, but when Brent Musburger said, it's the madness of March. Mm-hmm. You, you, you kind of create and enhance the, the frenzy of the public's interest. There's the marketing. Right. March madness. And it became a billion-dollar behemoth. I mean, college football drives the train, but don't you joke around with March madness. March madness is a, is a huge, huge deal in college athletics. And Rev made a point before we went on the air. I mean, when did NFL teams – Declared value go from fifty-five million to one point nine billion. 
or two point seven billion. I, I don't have any idea. I say the M's to the B's, the millions to the billions. Yeah, well, that's, that, when, that, that's kind of the old yeah, NASCAR, right? I mean, that, that's what they said about NASCAR. But the M's turned to B's. I mean, they turned to you know feces. I mean, they it didn't <laughs> they didn't manage it well, is what I'll say here. So I don't know the moment or the event that sports and athletics turned into big business, but I do think Bad Boys onto something. It was March Madness in college athletics that I remember going like, wow, this is a big deal. And the next thing you know, you read uh, in the USA Today or the state newspaper or the Wall Street Journal that um, the NCAA has signed a contract with CBS Sports for, you know, $650 million to broadcast March Madness. And then it's over a billion dollars. Josh, you're not a sports enthusiast. Of the 10 highest paid athletes in the world, what sport? Now, I said the world. What sport would you say the majority are from? Mm, in the world, I'd in, say it's soccer. Okay, you're right. You're right. Um, guess who else is heavily represented? This is kind of, I mean, I, I would guess soccer. I mean, I, I get that. Messi and Ronaldo and, you know, uh, Pele back in the day. So I understand the world's popularity with what they call football, soccer. Um <laughs> The sport that surprises me is Formula One racing. Now, but there's never a year that the top 10 highest paid athletes in the world, and I'm calling drivers athletes, that I've never seen the the Forbes magazine 10 you know highest paid athletes not include at least one Formula One driver. Normally two Formula One drivers. It's normally four soccer players, a couple of Formula One drivers, you know, a Tiger Woods, a an NFL player, a LeBron James, or somebody like that. But it's um it's always weird to me to see um Michael Schumacher or or somebody like that, Ayrton Senna. Somebody like who is Ayrton Senna? I mean, there's nobody named Ayrton Senna. I mean, that's that's a weird Ayrton Senna? Mikhail Schumacher? Because somebody corrected me one time. I said, Michael Schumacher. No, Mikhail Schumacher. <laughs> well, it's Michael in Pamplico. It may be Mikhail where he comes from, but it's Michael <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Schumacher. But he drives for Team Ferrari or he drives for Team Mercedes, you're talking about cult celebrities. I mean, you're right, Josh, soccer in some places around the world, but if you drive for team Ferrari and you're Italian and you're in the Italian Grand Prix, excuse me, Grand Prix, um, I mean, that's a big deal. That's a much bigger deal than Gamecock walk or, you know, uh, running down the hill. I know we like to think that it doesn't get any bigger than this. (laughs) I mean, you know, when they play 2001 and when they run down the hill, it doesn't get any bigger. Well, in our neck yeah. of the woods, it doesn't. Yeah, but don't get too full don't of yourself. Don't too full of you. There you go. <laughs> you go to the Italian Grand Prix and watch one of the uh, Ferrari drivers. It's like the Beatles met Elvis. And uh, same thing with some of the soccer player Ronaldo and, uh, and Messi. But in the good old U.S. of A., I would imagine March Madness would have been one of the, uh, I don't know, one of the, uh, the points in time when we became – I don't know, the realization of, wow, we can make a lot of money doing this. I mean, there's a way to that, that magic box that now it used to sit on furniture or really and truly sat on the floor for a long time and it weighed 6,000 pounds. And then we came up with a little smaller version, sat on a, a nightstand or an end table or something or other, a TV stands back in the day. Remember those, Rev? The old sure. TV stand oh, yeah. that you bought. Um, you didn't buy it online. You went to Sears or Penny's and you bought the old TV stand. And then it, um, next thing you know, it's hanging on the wall. Next thing you know, it's about an inch thick and weighs 12 pounds, and you use it up and throw it away. Now, now back in the day, 
how would it how would it be say in your house would somebody change the channel on the TV? Let's say there you had a a, a huge selection of maybe three channels to choose. We from. didn't have that. Yeah. Now, Josh, I'm I'm teaching you something here about history. We and, didn't have that, and this is true. Is that analog TV? Yeah, analog, analog broadcast okay. TV. Yeah, that's but, what I thought. Yeah, pre-cable. Yeah. Okay, so how did we change the channel? We didn't need to change the channel for most of my youth. I mean, there was one channel. We couldn't get that. We didn't have channel 15, WPDE. Really? No. Okay. I mean, the PDE came along when I was in high school. Um, we couldn't get WIS out of Columbia, so it was 13 or bust. I mean, it was WBTW. I mean, it was that or nothing. And um, Gunsmoke came on. All of the family came on. Um, now, when we finally did get one of these rotating antennas, you know, the three-legged, kind of a tripod. Yeah. And it's got um and on the roof dad, of the house. Yeah, we knew we'd arrived when yep. we had my dad. My mom had a car, and my dad had a truck. And he shows up one day with a trailer. And there's this little concrete slab poured out behind the house. And my dad was a do-it-yourselfer. So it had these three, you know, prongs coming out of the ground with bolt holes and whatnot. Next thing I know, two guys that built truck beds for him show up on Saturday morning, and they build a tower. And the cable runs down. and got a rope. You know, got the, uh, what am I trying to say here? On top of the TV, we had this. Yeah, like a little controller. Yeah, or the a, controller that turned the antenna yep. one way or another. And next thing you do, magically, Happy Rain appears. An Ultraman. I mean, we had waited with bated breath longer than you can imagine. I mean, we'd heard of Ultraman. We'd heard of the Happy Rain Hour. We'd heard of Gilligan's Island. We'd never seen that. <laughs> we'd never experienced any of that. It was um, Gunsmoke, all of the family. And on Gunsmoke, Monday night's Gunsmoke, my mom, you know, the Jiffy Pop popcorn that you put on the eye and you oh, kind of sure. shake back and forth and the, the tinfoil bubbles up, Josh. Yep. I mean, I, I know you, I mean, you think we're crazy, but this would have been hog heaven uh, in the day. You're darn right. Oh, my Lord. And, and, and on rare occasions, on a rare occasion, I got a Pepsi, my brother got a Pepsi, and my mom would let my brother and I split another one. I mean, that, that would have been like, wow. My my, my mom just bought us a Rolex. You know what I mean? That's the way we would we would have felt. Now, mom said, hey, there's another Pepsi if y'all were to split it. And we'd look at one another like, is she drinking? Mom doesn't drink. Is she, I mean, what, what's, what's up with this? I mean, it's always one for me, one for him. You know, we split everything everything down the middle. Every now and then, my mom would let my brother and I not only eat an ice cream sandwich, but we could split a third. I got half of that third. He got half of that third. And we'd kind of walk around with that half ice cream sandwich as if we were affluent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I've already eaten one, my friends, yeah. and I've got another whole half here. I've already <laughs> drank a Pepsi now. I've got another half Pepsi here. Mild the simple things. Oh, I tell you. That, uh, but, but no, we didn't have. We got WP, We got WPDE. Well, I mean, it was WBTW or nothing. And then Dad put up the antenna, and we got WIS. And we get there was a five there was a channel five out of Charleston. Yep. And the happy rain hour. We would be playing baseball. There was a lot between our we, we lived in a little neighborhood, kind of a subdivision, first house we ever had. We eventually moved out on a farm when my dad made a little money, but we lived in a little neighborhood and it was an empty lot. And we made a baseball field out of the empty lot. So we'd get home from school, we'd do our thing. Uh mom would always mom worked at the post office, worked part time, but dad worked all the time. So he's never there. So mom would pick it up pick us up from school. We'd congregate at the baseball field. I mean, we didn't know who owned the land, didn't care who owned the land. Uh, we had it marked off. You know what I mean? We had baseball lines, and if you hit it over the the the, the John Deere lawnmower, that was a double because it wasn't but 60 feet over there, but we didn't have any more room. Um, so so when we finally got, when my dad put the antenna up, 
and we could get that station out of Charleston. I mean, it was not clear. You had to squint, kind of lean, and make sure the sun didn't shine through the window. But um, but some parent, normally my mom, would stick her head out of the door and say, Ultraman's about to begin. And it was like gloves flying in the game. It had been like throwing your cap at a graduation. I mean, the gloves hit the <laughs> ground. And in my house, we went. Because we were the only house in that little neighborhood that had that affluent antenna. You know what I mean? We were the rich people <laughs> on the block. My dad had then built and us a third an of the ice cream sandwich. Yeah, and we'd turn that thing just right, and we'd see that happy rain hour come on, and Ultraman. Um, Google that, Josh, one of these days. Don't do it now, because I don't want to be so embarrassed. But you ever heard of Ultraman? I have. He was a, kind of a superhero before there were. I mean, the, the quality is, I laugh now. I mean, I've actually gone on YouTube, Ultraman, and I'm like, wow. But but when, when my mom stuck her head out of that door and said, hey, Ultraman's about to start. End of baseball game. I mean, I don't care who was on what baseballs in midair. It would have been like COVID when they canceled the basketball game at halftime. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the end of everything <laughs> for the next over. 30 minutes. Everybody go yeah. home. Yeah. I mean, the gloves are laying <laughs> on the ground. Hey, will, will the glove be there when you get back? I don't know what Ultraman's on. Ultraman is on. And, um, and my mom was such a good soul. She would figure out a way to have enough food for all six or seven of us. And looking back on it, I mean, my dad was building a business. Things were hard. I mean, I do remember that. Things were hard because dad had really invested everything he had in that business. And I'm little, but I hear the conversations. You know, be careful at the store this Saturday. You know, buying groceries. Be careful when you buy groceries this Saturday. But if me and my buddies went to that house, mom, some way, somehow, had M&Ms or peanuts or crackers or or something. And we sat, we sat on that floor and we watched Ultraman for 30 minutes. And then we bit, went back and played our um, our baseball game, and it, uh, wow! I mean, the good yeah, old see, days. My, my memory: I grew up in Cincinnati, and there were four channels, and I, we were in a, it was a, Cincinnati. Actually, as I've learned later, was a, a pretty advanced media market as far as television and radio back in those days. I mean, there were some some national shows, you know, Jerry Springer show, yeah, yeah. Uh, and such came out of Cincinnati. Uh, I remember there were four channels. 5, 9, 12, and uh, those were the networks, and then in, independent on 19, which you'd see all the the crazy stuff, you, you I would guess. Have been, you would have been a Rockefeller <laughs> yeah. in, in my part of the world. <laughs> but, 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 Josh, to the point, it, when you wanted to change channels on the TV, you actually had to stand up from your recliner, your couch, wherever you were, on the floor, and walk across the room and actually change the dial on the front of the television. There was no remote control. And, and then you would tweak it. In our case, you knew that the antenna went to this direction. If you're watching this channel, this direction, and you'd tweak it in so you'd get the, the clearest picture. But, but speaking of Ultraman, don't you think we are the, the luckiest generation because of Saturday morning cartoons? Oh, yeah. I mean, no, no doubt about it. I mean, it. that was appointment watching, you know, that Saturday morning on one of those broadcast channels, whichever it was, and the, the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Oh, man. I believe the luxury we had and, and, and the lesson that we could teach Josh's generation, because we've done a lousy, you've done a lousy job, and I've done a lousy job. My parents knew when to say yes and when to say no. And it didn't bother them to say no. I mean, we have this complex as parents today that we feel like we're neglecting our kids if we tell them no. No, you can't do this. No, you can't have that. No, you can't go here. I was told no about as much as I was told yes. And when I was told no, I found something else to do. When I was told yes, yes, you can have, you and your brother can split that third Pepsi. Yes, I'm, I'm going to let you have that third ice cream. I mean, that, that was, 
I mean, I just think we've done such a lousy job of telling our kids no. Such a lousy job of telling our kids you can't have everything you want when you want and the world doesn't revolve around you and your desires. We, we've just done a lousy, lousy job of that. Every kid believes they're the center of the universe. None are. They didn't, they weren't born. Well, innately, you're born believing, you know, there's this selfish makeup we all have. But we poured, as parents, we poured jet fuel on that fire. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, we had a pretty philosophical debate yesterday about solution enabling. I used um, the situation of the General Assembly and the delegation will be here this morning, one, two, or three. And I want to make, I want to get clarity on exactly what the Democrats are talking about. I mean, I've read Twitter and I've heard what Todd Rutherford said. I've heard some of the other Democrats, you know, we got to feed our, our children. And it kind of led down a philosophical debate that we have with ourselves. And some of you chimed in about government being a solution or government being an enabler and the mindset of a liberal. And then once again, we're talking about events and experiences. Reb made a very valid point during the break. My mom didn't say, Hey government, I don't have enough money to have uh, food ready for seven kids when Ultraman comes on. My mom figured it out. I mean, we were certainly not um, affluent, certainly not wealthy. Everything was a struggle early in my childhood when dad was trying to build a business. Now, I knew as I got into high school that we were doing better than most. I mean, daddy had worked real hard. Um, and I remember one day, wow, okay. I mean, we're living a little bit different than we never lived big. I mean, I want to say they never lived a big life, but it was a struggle. And I remember as a young kid, you know, dad warning mom. I mean, I, I, just be careful. Just be real careful. These things may happen. This may not happen. Um, but I don't, I mean, my mom didn't say it's unfair for me not to have the money or not to have the food ready for these seven kids that want to come into my home, stop playing baseball for 30 minutes and, and watch Ultraman. Um, that's kind of the enabler that I think government has become. The mindset of a liberal is government is part of the solution. The mindset of a conservative is that oh, it's not a solution. You're enabling people to look to government for more and more and more and more. And we have this internal debate uh, with ourselves about why someone would be a liberal. Why would you be a Democrat today? You're watching Biden. I don't know if you saw this yesterday. They were talking about Biden refers to Trump in a very impolite way behind closed doors, mm-hmm. um, calls him a blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? I'll just leave it. The real profane, very profane. Um, he's a dumb blank. Um, people with dementia, their language gets pretty profane at times. Um, I'm thinking about two or three people or families that I've known that have dealt with people who have late life dementia and their language just gets real salty. I I got no idea why that's the case. I'm not saying every person with dementia starts cussing like a sailor, but, but they seem to, (laughs) you're nodding your head. I mean, you've heard heard that, that that. you know, they're like, they're just not themselves. I mean, obviously they're losing their mental faculties and profanity. Just is something that. It's a little bit humorous. I mean, I've had a, a buddy of mine whose father got dementia, and he said, my dad never talked like that, man, but it's crazy to hear him say uh, some of these things now. But but I think when you talk about enabling or or solution, uh, the mind of a de- Democrat, the mind of a liberal, I think the one thing that liberals have an advantage over is we're talking about in America today. You know, I'm the center of the universe. The world owes me something. The Democrat mantra 
is make it easy. The conservatives' mantra or philosophy is, well, it can't be easy. I mean, if we've got all these problems in the world, Rev, let's say America, leave the world alone. We've got all these problems in America. And if we don't print money we don't have, some people have to be told no. I mean, that would be the mindset of a limited government conservative. I'm not saying they act upon that impulse because they like to win elections. But, but philosophically, the reason you align with conservatism or limited government or libertarianism is you believe the government spends too much money. And because it spends all that money, it becomes somewhat of an enabler. And it doesn't provide solutions very often. Um, is a real solution a solution if you put it on the tab and know you'll never be able to pay it back? I mean, to me, that's you're expecting something magical to happen. I mean, you got all these problems in the country. And to fix Josh's problem and Rev's problem and my problem, we need a trillion dollars. Well, the mind of a conservative says to Josh, no, can't do that. Rev can't do that. Ken can't do that. The liberal says, well, we got to do that. I mean, these people have problems. They have issues. Well, we got to be the solution. They're looking to us to fix things. Yeah, but I mean, to fix these things, we got to borrow money we don't have. Eh, but we got to fix it. I mean, we can't let these people go without. We can't let these people live in hardship. We can't let these people. And the example I used yesterday is, is I think it's a good example. The government is, the, the, the governor of South Carolina, and I want to make sure with, with J. Mike and, um, and Philip that I'm getting this straight, but the governor's refusing to participate in a program. It's a bigger program, but part of the program includes school nutrition, breakfast for kids. And the Democrats are saying that McMaster won't take the money and he's allowing our children, I mean, we must feed our children. Well, I mean, we must feed our children is collective in nature. But there's nothing individual about that. There's nothing reflecting of liberty in that. We must feed our children. You know what, Rev? You must feed your child. You know what, Ken? You must feed your child. So the government creates a program on one side that says to females having kids, if you have that kid and get married, here's the deal. If you have that kid and don't get married, here's the deal. So we financially incentivize kids, excuse me, well, yeah, kids, to have kids that can't afford to have that kid. And on the other side, the government says, well, I mean, forget that program or that, that incentivized model we use on the other side. There's no denying that. I mean, you can be a liberal, a conservative, a libertarian, or a socialist. The federal government today, in its infinite wisdom, subsidizes and incentivizes young females to have kids and not get married. You are financially better off, unless your husband, you know, unless you marry and he brings his income into the family. I mean, the federal government has basically said to young females, you're better off not allowing this gentleman into your life. Take that kid and we'll pick up the slack. I mean, that's what they've done. I don't give a damn what your political beliefs are. That is true. I mean, there are multiple programs. If you have another kid, guess what? You get a little more money. Another kid, you get a little more money. So the female who really and truly has no business having a kid has been incentivized to have that kid, has even further been incentivized to not allow old Bo into her life. So she sends that kid to school hungry, expecting the government. That's the enabling force of government. There's nothing solution-based about that. The government created the problem on one side by allowing the female to understand with clarity that if I have this kid, I get money. If another kid, I get more money. Another kid, I get more money. 
I mean, I, that, that's not conservative liberal. That's the truth. I mean, there's no denying that that's a reality. So she gets X number of benefit for having X number of children. She sends that kid to school. A teacher or administrator say, this kid's hungry. I mean, this kid hadn't been fed. This kid's not ready to learn. So you don't go to the mom and say, hey, you're getting money from the government to feed your kids. Why aren't you feeding your kids? No, in our everybody has to have an easy world. We say to the government, well, we need more money to feed these kids once they get to school. That is not a solution. That's an enabling force. I mean, there's nothing. You're not solving a problem. You're creating a bigger problem and a bigger problem and a more expensive problem and a more expensive problem. And I just don't, but, but, but when I look and I say, okay, how is Joe Biden tied with Donald Trump? Biden is a reflection of the political party that says, we got to make it easy. We got to make it easy. And people in general like to be told yes instead of being told no. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Michael in Johnsonville. Good morning. You're on the air. Hello, Michael. Yeah. Hey, you're on. Hey, uh, and this is uh this is you you kinda yeah, uh, we can't understand yeah. you, Michael. I'm sorry, you got a bad connection. Not a bad connection, but you're in a a place of which. What is the variety? Can you hear me now? <laughs> well, we can't. We can't hear you now, uh, Michael. So get somewhere a little closer to a tower and a bed, better reception area, and we'll try to um allow you to speak your piece, my man. We yes, had sir. somebody else on the phone, and they dropped. I think eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I mean, uh, you know, cell phone technology is great. When it works, right? Yeah, it's great when it works. Um, yeah. but sometimes it doesn't quite work as um as you would expect. Is somebody else on the on the line? Do uh, we know yet? Yep, I'm getting the information. Okay. This is William. Hey, William. How y'all doing, Dave? Ken. Hey, William. You know, I ca- I caught the last part of y'all show yesterday about people on disability and stuff like that. Uh, I just had to go get my niece and my nephew. Because my older niece, their mama, gets disability because they say she can't cope with life. So she gets disability. But they done took her youngest away from her three times. This is the fourth time. And they keep giving them back to them. What's wrong with our people, man? They keep taking youngest away from people that's doing drugs and treating them wrong. But they give them back to them. What is wrong with them? Thank you, William. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, the, the point I made yesterday toward the end of the show, and, and it can could, it could sound very cold-hearted, when, and, and, and I'm not picking on Todd. I, mean, it's, it's, I, I think Todd's a good guy. I think Todd's a smart guy, but he's a Democrat. He sees the world differently than I do, but I don't begrudge Todd Rutherford uh, for the way he sees the world. I think Todd's a negative force in Judicial Merit Selection Committee. Um, I think Todd is a kind of the poster child of why we need to do something different than what we're currently doing but Todd's no dummy by any stretch of the imagination a very bright lawyer and uh and, and and well aware of what he says and should be a part of the debate no question about it I'm not here to say tell Todd you know Rutherford to shut up I mean that's not my place and I wouldn't do that if it was my place but when Todd tweeted about Henry refusing some of the money some of the match money and I think it's it's in the Medicaid budget in some way but it's nutritional supplemental nutritional money for 
Um, kids going to school hungry. Um, schools being required to serve breakfast to children. And Todd said, you know, we have got to be able to feed our children. And I believe that's an appropriate sentence in a life-altering event. I mean, when, when a hurricane hits, we're in this thing together. When a tornado hits, we're in this thing together. Um, when, when, when some, I mean, when, when some, when 9-11 hits, I mean, we, we tend to kind of, um, I don't know, Rev, we, we, we begin considering the common good more than we normally do. Our neighbors are in trouble. Our neighbors need our help. It's not because they overslept and didn't go to work and couldn't pay the, the house payment. That's your little red wagon. I mean, that's just the way, I'm sorry, that's the way I look at it. But, but in, when, when something cataclysmic happens, when something unexpected happens, yeah. I mean, we need to make sure we can feed our children. But we're treating the world today like every day's 9-11. Like there's always a, a cataclysmic event. That we're all in this thing together every second of every day. And I don't buy that. I think it's up to Josh to blaze his own trail. I think it's up to Reb to do his own thing. I think it's up to me to do my own thing. And I think when I succeed, I enjoy the benefit. When I fail, I suffer the consequences. I mean, life's a mixed bag. Josh and I were talking about a, a particular situation in his life this morning that has worked out. I mean, it sucked for a little while, but now it's a lot better. And that's the journey. I mean, that's the good and the bad of life. And I think I'm not, I'm not a, a counselor by any stretch of the imagination, but I think when, when Todd, as a Democrat, says – we got to be able to feed our children. He's looking at that as kind of a daily occurrence. And I don't. I think we have to pull together and we must look after one another, especially when something unexpected happens. I mean, we rally around people we care about. We rally around people that we believe need help. But in the day-to-day -day grind of life, you got to make your own way. And I got to make my own way. And Rev's got to make his own way. And I think Democrats look at government as... When Josh can't make his own way, when our callers can't make their own way, then government's got to solve that problem. And I believe it's been more of an enabler than it's been uh, in, 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 in the means of creating solutions. And that's kind of what we um, ended the show with yesterday. And when you look at the poll and you say, I mean, Biden has dementia. I mean, the, the world is unsettled, far more unsettled now than it was when Trump was in office. We've got this hyperinflation uh, 90, excuse me, 78% of Americans believe we're on the wrong track. Um, why are they still voting Democrats? Well, Democrats' philosophy is to make things easy, to fix problems. I mean, if we can't feed our kids, then the government needs to solve that problem. So, so Democrats are always going to be popular with people who want everything to be easy. But the only way things are easy is to put it on the tab. But I mean, that's the only easy part of this. We can't make everything easy with a balanced budget. We just can't. I mean, no is going to be required. Can we approve this expenditure? No. Why? We don't have enough money. But in the federal government, can we approve this expenditure? Yes. But we don't have enough money, so put it on the tab. That's why Democrats remain relevant. That's why they remain popular. They like to tell you yes and make it easy, and the average American likes to be told yes and likes to have it be made easy. Let's go to the phone. Damon in Darlington. Hi, you're on. Good morning, fellas. Uh, enjoy your show. Long-time listener, first-time calling. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Ard, you absolutely nailed it. Um, you know, we're feeding these children. We're raising them from the cradle to the grave. Cradle to the grave, and, it all, and that's just part of it. We've got medical expenses. Um, we've got uh, 
Well, you know the deal. All it is is for another vote, and I'm sorry, but that's the truth, and we appreciate what you guys do. Thank Thanks you. So appreciate much. that. And, and and as long as Democrats are able to say yes and, 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 you know, put it on the tab, they're going to get a lot of votes. It's hard to beat Santa Claus. What do we say about Republicans? Conservative Republicans know that, that Social Security and Medicare have to be dealt with. They know that. I mean, there's not a single soul in Washington that can't do math to some degree. I'm not saying they're rocket scientists, but, but for the most part, they can do math, and they see the line items, and they see the expenditures. They know what's coming in and what's going out. They know that we're kicking the can that will eventually become a drum and eventually become a, a, you know, a tanker, but they like winning. The Democrats genuinely believe it, and this is where I, I get real. I mean, they genuinely believe that you can spend forever. Free mark, excuse me, um, uh, mo- modern monetary theory is real, and Keynesian economist is c- kind of what we need to seriously consider. Um, I mean, that, to me, that's the fundamental difference in the philosophy. The Republicans should be ashamed of themselves that they're going along. The Democrats genuinely believe that making it easy is their job. And if we only give government a little more money, we can solve a few more of these problems. In reality, you're enabling more problems to come as a result of your unwillingness to say no. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our numbers. couple of callers. Let's go there. Michael in Johnsonville, back on the line. Hope you have a better connection this time. Hi, Michael. Hey. Hey, Ken. Good morning, you guys. Um, look here, you know, you were just talking earlier about feeding the children and such. Um, one word just popped into mind and it was accountability. Um, we just don't, we don't have any more accountability. People, people don't want to be held accountable for anything. You know, I'm a, I'm a small business owner. If I screw up, I got to be accountable for it. If your daddy, when he was, you know, um, when he was living and he was running double A builders, if he screwed up. He, he was held accountable for it, not only for the business, but also, you know, in the home sense as well, um, because, you know, you just said, you just alluded to um, about, you know, not being food on the table and such. But um, these young people nowadays and the people that are on government assistance, I mean, they just feel like, you know, their job is to lay on their back and have youngins, and... Um, they just don't want to be held accountable, and they let the government just fund everything they want, even down to the school system when you got people coming to school and they're hungry. Now, I don't want to see a kid, you know, go without eating, but when you go get your hair done and your nails done and all that kind of stuff and you don't feed your children, then there's something wrong with that picture. Um, so I just that's just what I had on my mind this morning. I just wanted to throw that out there and, um, y'all have a good day. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate that. And that's why I tried to argue less about conservative and liberal and more about solution and enabler. I mean, I just think that's an interesting way to have this debate. The mind of a, of a liberal believes that there's a problem in society. It can't be fair. It can't be fair for Josh to have more than Ken. It can't be fair for Rev to have two cars and I only have one. I mean, something had to happen in somebody's life. And the government's got to make that right. The government's got to solve that problem. Well, it's not a problem. It's the way the world works. It's the way individual liberties and freedoms and, and responsibilities and the callers said accountability kind of integrate themselves in all of our decision-making processes and lives. And I just don't understand 
I mean, I clearly understand why somebody who doesn't believe life is fair would vote for a Democrat because they affirm that. Somebody ends up on the bad side of life, and the Democrat says, well, that's not really your fault. I mean, you made 127 consecutive bad decisions, but, I mean, at the end of the day, you were led to make those bad decisions because the world's not a fair place. And the Democrat tells these people, it's really the grievance class. I mean, it's, you know, that they've cobbled together. The Democrats have done a spectacular job in identifying people who have the potential to believe they've been aggrieved or discriminated against and say, hey, we're your choice. I mean, you know how this other party is. They believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They believe that everybody gets a, a fair shake. They believe that you chart your own course and blaze your own trail. We believe that life's not fair. We believe that people take advantage of other people, and we believe that government needs to be weaponized to make sure it takes from those that have, gives to those who have not, um, you know, punishes those who find productivity in their lives and reward those who are unproductive. Uh, and so, so when you say, and all of this came from someone asking me a week or so ago, how can Joe Biden have the support of 44% of Americans? And I said, well, I mean, half of Americans want it to be made easy. <laughs> they, they don't ever want to be told no. That they want to, every day needs to be the 4th of July. They deserve that. Why? Because they've been discriminated against. Somebody took advantage of these people at some point in time in their lives. And I just think that there's a message there to, to a lot of Americans about the government not being a problem solver, but rather an enabler that creates bigger and bigger and bigger problems. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Uh, I'm going to get to this in just a second. Before we do, go to Ryan Schmelz. Want to be respectful of his time. He's in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. Happy Friday. Yeah, same to you, sir. So Fox News has, re- has released uh, some polling on the state surveys of the 2024 presidential election. What can you tell us about some of these surveys, Ryan? Well, it looks like from the surveys we have, which looked at Georgia and Wisconsin, former President Trump has a commanding lead now over President Biden in that state. And in Wisconsin, they're in a dead heat tied at 47 to 47. Do we make, I mean, obviously the national poll makes the news, but but Ryan, these polls are who will decide. I mean, these states will decide the next president of the United States. You probably don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyway. Um, how often will Fox track these, these states, uh, but that that's going to be yeah, critically important as we move into summer and fall. Right. No, I, I don't know the specifics on how often we will do this, but we do do it pretty frequently. So I would expect this to continue as we get closer to election day. And we have a really strong polling uh, division here and it's gotten a lot of great reviews from outside sources too. So, yeah, no, I, I would expect this just to be the first of many in the coming months. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. It really doesn't matter about the national polling. Do we have a call? Let's go there. I want to get uh, to Trump here in just a second, but let's go to the, to the caller. Breeze. Good morning. You know, kid, it's, it's bread and circuses, and, but here's the deal. The liberal mind is usually acting out of kindness. The elite leftist globalist is evil. And if you think about what we're talking about, it is evil. So if they start controlling whether or not your child gets food, if they control whether, and and here's the next question, what are they putting in the food that they're giving your child for free? And this goes even 
he wanted to go to a Buffalo Bills game and was willing to get the vaccine because he couldn't go to the game unless he got the vaccine. So you can go to the circus side, but only if you get the government vaccine. And he was willing to take that health risk. He goes, oh, I'll be all right, Dad. It won't, it won't kill me down the line. I said, well, son, it's killing you. He goes, are you sure not? And finally, I talked him out of it. But then here you go again. All right, your kid's getting free bills. But for him to get these free bills, you have to give your son this vaccine, this shot. Or you have to maybe have a brain implant into your son so we can, for his old kids, so we can regulate blah, blah, You see where I'm going? And then you, then you look at the evil of it. Okay, well, I need free housing. Well, BlackRock and Vanguard and all those other wonderful, kind, compassionate companies are buying up right now as we speak every home they can buy in America. And there's some projections out there that it won't be long before they may own as much as 60% of the single-family homes. So then your kids and my kids won't even be able to buy a home Unless they, let's say, acquiesce and totally submit to the cathedral and be their willing slaves. So what they're doing is they're trying to make you think that they're being compassionate by feeding these poor kids. No, they aren't. They are being evil and evil and satanic and it's the and demonic and it is the dark side. They're trying to control all of us. And if they can control what you eat, how you eat, what you eat, where you live, whether you have heating, whether you have air. You, you go to our schools, you have to comply with A, B, C, D, E, and they are enslaving everybody, and the citizens of America need to wake up to this. You think you're doing good, liberal, but the leftist elitist is playing you like a cutie fork. Amen. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. The most interesting point Breeze made, because he makes a lot, but the most interesting point he made to me, because I thought about this yesterday, I'm talking about the mind of a liberal. I'm not talking about the mind of a power-hungry leftist authoritarian. I mean, I'm not talking about Davos, the kind, gentle, conscious believer in big government, the liberal, in the traditional sense, is probably not at Davos. I mean, I've got a few people in my world that I put in that category. I mean, they're dear friends of mine. And, and, and God bless them. I mean, they genuinely believe that something has to be done about this inequity. Something has to be done about this unfairness. And they're not out for power. They're not out for, for um, uh, you know, for influence. They're not out for fame or fortune. They genuinely have a kind of a predisposition of, hey, man, there are these people, and these people need help. And the only, the only apparatus I know that can provide sufficient help is the government. I mean, they're genuinely believing that government needs to do whatever it can to put these people back on its feet. That's not Davos. I mean, that's not the what, what I'll call the, the modern, woke, power-hungry left, leftist in general. I mean, that, that's about power. That's about authority. That's about, about control. So please don't misunderstand, because uh, I'm thinking about two people in particular, I mean, I don't believe the two people that I'm thinking about, and everybody probably listening to me has a person or two in their, in, in their world, in their orbit that has these characteristics and traits, but the person I'm talking about gen- genuinely, sincerely believes that certain people get left behind that shouldn't get left behind, and government 
is the vessel of which we can right that wrong, genuinely, sincerely, in an altruistic and sincere and humanitarian way, believe that that's the case. We'd call them bleeding heart liberals. I mean, we would be, you know, you know how that conservatives are, man. They don't want, they don't, they don't want to help people. They, they want, you know, they believe in these free markets. They believe in personal responsibility, and but they don't hate us. I mean, I don't think that the traditional conservative and the bleeding heart liberal hate one another. I mean, I think they have these vehement disagreements, and I think they're passionate about what they believe. I'm tired of the government doing all these things, but the government has to do all these things. But I'm tired of the damn government doing all these things, but the government kind of has to do all of these things, Ken. Well, you don't understand me. No, you don't understand me, but that's not Davos, guys. I mean, that's not who's driving the train for the American political left. The bleeding heart liberal is, as Breeze said, a pawn in the game. I mean, the crowd at Davos that are looking for authority and command and power and influence and, and fortune, I mean, they, they, they are evil. I mean, I, I'll buy that. The bleeding heart liberal is dangerous, but I don't believe they're, they're evil. They're dangerous because they'll spend all the money and they'll take people at their word. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's dangerous. <laughs> they'll spend all the money because they'll take people at their word. The, the Davos liberal, the Davos leftist, the, the, the Davos globalist elitist, is evil. I mean, that, that is an evil mindset, an evil ideology, and it's not about making people whole and well. It's about control and power and influence and money, and that is ungodly as far as I'm concerned. Probably the better word, the all-encompassing word, would be the ungodly American political left. On, on that scale between the two you just described, where does the tyrannical do-gooder fall on that scale? Uh, it depends on what day of the week it is. I think the tyrannical do-gooder is so perplexed with this party and, and persuade. I, I just still, I'm not thinking about you. You're probably thinking about the same person I am right now. Um, they want to command the government to do X, Y, or Z, but they sincerely believe they're doing it for the right reason. I don't believe the people at Davos hide behind, Hey, let's pretend we're doing this for the right reason. I mean, they believe that they're morally and intellectually superior. I don't think most liberals believe, I mean, no, Obama does. But I don't think, I mean, the liberals that I bump into, I mean, I don't think they believe that on every issue they're morally and intellectually superior. Some do, and it's obvious when they do. I mean, they, they'll, they'll insult. I mean, they'll disparage. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll say things, and it's, it's obvious who they are and what they're speaking of. But, but I'll call it a good, no, I, I dare, I, I shouldn't say this because it'll probably hurt me with our audience, but we just got ratings, and it's kind of like elections. You'll have time enough to, to forgive us. <laughs> There's a difference in the Southern and Northern liberal. There's a big difference in the Southern and the Northern liberal. I don't know why. I mean, I, I've never lived up North. I don't know what's different about living up North, but there is, I mean, I'm not ever insulted. And Breeze knows who I'm talking about. I, I have a Southern liberal friend. He has a Southern liberal friend. Breeze grew up with this guy. I've gotten to know him real well in politics. He's not an insulting person. He's a liberal. He's a true believer, but he's never, I've never felt insulted about things he says to me. If I bumped, to, in, bumped into a, a liberal from New York or Massachusetts, it doesn't take me long to get insulted. Now, maybe they're as insulted as I am, but, but there's something, there's an edginess about that Northern liberalism and a little bit of humility about that Southern. And I'm not saying one's better than the other. It's just a different attitude that each have. Let's go to the phone. Sam and Cross Hill. Good morning. 
Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, Ken, uh, you've really taken me back down uh, memory lane here this morning with the discussion. I'm I'm a baby boomer, and uh, I was blessed uh, w to be able to grow up in Darlington back in the 50s and the 60s and 70s. One of the TV shows I remember, this was probably before your time, was uh, Spaceship C8 that came on WBTW with Ashby Ward, and he uh, had this little makeshift uh, spaceship, and kids would go and kind of be a children's show. But yeah, the the, the 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 three channels that you got on the knob that you had to turn and adjust the antenna brings great memories there. But um, but I would say that I was raised in a blue collar family. Both of my parents worked in manufacturing, and uh, it was only after they really began to uh, need my help with some of the financial assistance and stuff like that that I got to go back and look at what they really did and the sacrifices they made for us as we were growing up. And, I, and you know, now they're past, but I still have a great appreciation for what they, what they did uh, for us. And, um, you know, I was blessed to grow up in a neighborhood where it was just full of kids because we were war, war, war babies when the guys came back. And um, every parent in that neighborhood had, the, had parental powers over all of us. And if we misbehaved, they had the power to us straighten us out. And um, my parents would say no, but they hated to say no, but they would say no at times. But um, what I'm really calling you about is the, um, you know, you're talking about government. And so my question is, how much is too much? It would be interesting to know what the total, you know, outlays are that the government makes for assistance to families and in particular to kids. You know, they get food stamps, school, free school lunches. And, and whatnot, and you know, the recent tax bill that the House has just passed um, has a child tax credit in there, which is refundable to a certain extent. For 24, the refundable amount will be $1,900. So if you don't owe any taxes and you, and, and you file the return, you're gonna get a refund of 1,900 per child if they qualify. So, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in there that the government is is providing assistance to families and to kids, and the school lunch menu program is just one of them. And I support what uh, Government Master did there um, about by eliminating that 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 program because it was really a COVID era kind of thing, and COVID is over now. So anyway, it's just my two cents worth, and really enjoying the show this morning and everybody that's contributing. And we haven't heard from Jeff. Where's Jeff? Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Um, I don't know what the number is. I mean, I don't know what enough's enough and when's too much. I mean, I don't have any, I'm not the guy that needs to decide what the federal outlay should be. And if we're going to cut and I mean, let, let's say hypothetically, I mean, this would be real hypothetical, but let's say that that leadership got real serious about the debt and you know what they'll do. They'll appoint a blue ribbon committee. It'll be bipartisan. There'll be Republicans, Democrats and, you know, and they'll, they'll get together and they'll try to, um, compromise on where spending cuts need to be made and, and revenue enhancements. Some of that's what tax increases are called. I mean, nobody says I'm raising your taxes. We got to enhance revenue. No, but that, that's just uh, political talk, political speak there. The problem that I think we have in America today, and, and I think Bree's kind of alluded to this, and this is my opinion. People have different opinions. Of course, I don't have any interest in negotiating with the godless left. I don't know where the common ground is. I mean, I think I can negotiate in good faith with bleeding heart liberals. I mean, I, I see where they're coming from, Rev, that there's something about them 
that 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 makes them feel like they do about government. They don't have any desire to be in charge of government. They don't have any desire to be to get rich off government. There's a sincerity about that that I respect. I disagree with it. I think it's scary because they'll spend all the damn money because they'll never tell anybody no. That's the bleeding heart liberal. The bleeding heart liberal needs to work in concert with a true conservative. They don't hate one another. They have passion about what they believe in. Um, they're not after authority or power or influence. But I have no so so I am more than willing to to get in a room and negotiate with bleeding heart liberals about what government should or should not do. But I have no interest in negotiating with godless leftists. I just don't, because I think everything about their agenda, it's not about hungry children. It's not about parents having kids. It's not about a trillion dollars we don't have. It's about more power, more influence, and more money. I mean, that's what they're motivated by. When we get together in Davos, when they get together in Davos, it's not necessarily bleeding heart liberals. They need a few bleeding heart liberals to be the front man of the band so you can't see how dirty and nasty the authoritarians really are, the control freaks really are, the, 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 the warmongers really are, the, you know, the, the ones that are seeking the next war to fund the, the military-industrial complex really, really are. So my problem is not with the bleeding heart liberal. I think I understand them. My problem is the godless leftist who all they want is more and more power, more and more influence, and more and more money, and they would not care if we left your grandchildren with $500 trillion in debt if the, as long as they get more than their fair share. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Josh, take it as back in time with the bumper music. I like Let's it. go to the phone. Uh, here is Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. Good morning. My call is not about uh, feeding the kids, but it is about the mind of a Democrat, or I guess I'd say a mind of a leftist. You guys have a PSA that plays a couple times every morning about gun safety. And in the PSA, you, I'm sure you guys are having coffee and chilling. You're not listening to this stuff. But in the PSA, the man is talking real somber. He says, I think her name's Heather, his wife. I guess Heather and I got in a bad argument. I was really down. I had a gun in my house. Uh, Heather, or whatever her name was, you know, taught me that I had plenty to live for, blah, blah, blah. He was going to commit suicide, okay? He says, now I have my gun and my ammo locked away separately and all that. And then the voiceover comes in and talks about uh, gun suicide and so forth. A leftist, Ken, will listen to that commercial and say, well, that makes sense. He should keep his gun and his ammo separate to avoid suicide. Well, that only makes sense if I bought the gun in order to facilitate suicide in the event that I decided I wanted to kill myself. Because that ain't why I got my gun. I got my gun in case somebody breaks in my house, see? And at that point in time, I don't have time to go to this lock and get the gun and this lock to get the ammunition and load the old boy up, you see. But but the, the leftist, the liberal, hears that, that, that concept, and they say, you know, that really makes it it's safe to do that. Well, it's not safe if you have a home and – listen, if you hear Uncle Boudreaux killed himself, investigate, okay, because I think too highly of my mama's baby boy to do him any harm. Uh, so suicide ain't going to happen. But somebody could likely break in my house, which is the reason I got the gun. But that, that's just an example of the difference because a leftist hears that commercial and says, you know, that is a good idea. If, if I wanted to kill myself, I need to take time to get the gun and get the ammunition and put it together. By then, I would have decided – I, maybe I don't want to kill myself. Well, 
that guy breaking in your house ain't going to give you time to do all that, see? So, so it's, again, it's not about feeding kids, but it is about the mind of a liberal. They just think different. And I think it was Ann Coulter wrote that book, How to Talk to a Liberal If You Must. And I haven't read it, but a friend of mine did, and he said she needs to rewrite that book because liberals ain't the same now as they was when she wrote that book. Yeah, so, thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate it. And, and we've always had a debate between liberal and conservative. I mean, that's been historic. That's been an essential part of the American way. But um, but it's different today. I mean, it's genuinely different today. And maybe maybe we on the right aren't doing a good enough job distinguishing the bleeding heart liberal. And I think you understand what I say when I say that. I mean, I think Boudreaux did a good job of explaining the mind of a bleeding heart liberal. But a leftist, a power-hungry leftist, is uniquely different than than a bleeding heart um, liberal. I had it explained to me one day, back in the Gilded Age, there were these real affluent that gathered in certain places and certain enclaves of society, and they lived the affluent lifestyle. And beggars knew that. I mean, it's a little bit like when, when they ask, you know, why do you rob the bank? That's where the money is. So the beggars would show up at these uh, kind of on the streets near where these affluent people gathered and the affluent people had all the money and the beggars would, you know, I mean, if I'm begging, I'd rather beg people that have a lot of money than beg people who are as broke as I am. Um, But word got out amongst the beggars that the affluent were trying to determine if you're more disabled, if you appear to be more, more disabled, um, or deformed, deformities would have been a big word back then. If you're more deformed than the other beggars, you get you get more money. Uh, but the affluent were giving away some of their money because they could, and I guess it has some kind of a spiritual nourishment we all need. So I'm wealthy, you're not. I don't know that I deserve all my wealth. I see that you're in a bad place, so here, here's a dollar. Well, the, once the beggars figured out that the affluent were, you know, being charitable based on how severe your deformity was, they began to take tourniquets and put on fingers and cut the blood flow off and the finger would fall off and it'd get them a better standing with the affluent in the Gilded Age than the other beggars. The mind of a liberal doesn't believe that person exists. They don't believe that someone would do that to not work, to not be productive, to take advantage of a system. I've always felt that. We conservatives are highly cynical and skeptical. Of course they'll do it. I mean, they'll lose an index finger for an extra $100,000. I mean, you know, they'll put a tourniquet on a pinky. Who needs the pinky anyway? And you can show your hand. It's deformed and the affluent. Say, okay, it looks to me like you need this money more than that guy because all of his digits are in place and he's he's good. The, the, the liberal doesn't believe that that person exists. They think we're making that up. You and I know better. We know that people will gain the system. We know that they'll play to whatever advantage they must. And if they're hell-bent on not working and being productive, they'll take a tourniquet and put on their finger, and a month later it falls off. They get a more a better standing in the beggar's line. That's kind of fundamentally. And we're talking about kind of psychology now. We're talking about the mind of a liberal, the mind of a conservative. But I want to be clear. I don't think a bleeding-heart liberal goes to Davos. I think the crowd that goes to Davos are, are leftists seeking power, influence, and money. Uh, Congressman Russell Fry is with us, if I'm not mistaken. Good morning, Congressman. How are you? I'm doing very well, sir. Not going to Davos. Yeah, not going to Davos. <laughs> yeah, you nor I are going to Davos, I don't think. We, we wouldn't be real popular in, uh, in Davos being yeah. from Ori in Florence County, uh, my good friend. Um, but if we went to Davos, we could go across the southern border and nobody would check where we came from 
or where we're headed, there seems to be some movement, Congressman, to impeach Mayorkas. Is that just political talk, or is there genuinely a, a legal argument that Congress will make to impeach uh, Mayorkas? I think there's a legal argument, right? So I'm going to put on my lawyer hat for a second. Impeachment, you, know, you go back and look at the Federalist Papers. I think it's Federalist 65, and they, they lay out kind of the, the case, and, and there are times in which, obviously, you can have a situation of bribery that's not present here, but you have a high crime, a misdemeanor, uh, uh, you have bribery, you have some breach of the public trust. And you go back into English common law, and what does that mean? And and here, this isn't a political dis- difference with what the Secretary of Homeland Security has not done. Right? This isn't, we don't agree with this policy or we don't agree with that. This is, you have failed to do your job at such a catastrophic level that we are compelled uh, under the Constitution and really under good government to get rid of you uh, in that office. And, and I think the founders intended that, that there would be situations in which executive branch officials would just be so bereft of any talent uh, any ability, uh, any competency to do their job that we got to get rid of them. And, and so I think here the case is there. Look, he's lied to Congress uh, multiple times. He says he has operational control of the border. We all know that that is a complete joke. He, he has never had operational control of the border. Uh, he's, he has refused to follow the law. He, they have made 52 um, executive actions to reverse Trump-era immigration policy that actually worked. And so in every which way, it's just time to go. I don't think removing him solves the whole problem, but I think it's a good start. Congressman, but, but you guys, I want to make it clear, because I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I read a lot about this. The Congress is not saying you don't have a right to be a liberal when it comes to, to border policy. You don't have a right to be an open borders advocate if you so choose but your obligation is to the Constitution, and the Constitution charge you, charges you or holds you accountable to follow the laws of our country. Is that a fair interpretation? It's not that he's guilty of being a liberal. It's not that he's guilty of being an open border advocate. It's not following the Constitution. Yeah, or, or the law or just really anything. You know, you look at um, Secretary Jay Johnson. He was the Homeland Security Secretary under Obama, right? Policy differences, for sure, from our side and theirs. Um, but he always tried, and he said, if, if we get 1,000 migrants a day, it's at a crisis, right? Like, you take that threshold. I mean, this is a man who at least was trying to do his job. Mayorkas is at 10,000 a day. And, I mean, so we are well past crisis mode. Um, and, and he comes before Congress, and you watch him, and he doesn't answer questions, and he kind of sneers. And the questions that he chooses to answer, he's lying through his teeth. And honestly, people are so fed up with it, we, we see it. I mean, I'm getting you know, pictures from constituents in the community where they're seeing, you know, they're seeing the influx of illegal immigration. They're watching in their community 300 Americans die every day from fentanyl poisoning. You know, they're looking at 300-plus uh, people who are on the terror watch list. Come through. They're just tired of it. And, and this guy refuses to, one, acknowledge the problem. Um, so, but you got to acknowledge it in order to deal with it, and they just won't. So we're gonna we're gonna try to start that process. Some things are bigger issues, and the media doesn't cover it as much. You're talking about human trafficking. I know that you've been someone paying close attention to the situation centering around human trafficking. Kind of tell us the um, the sentiment of Congress relating to human trafficking. It's kind of one of those, Ken. It's kind of one of those rare bipartisan type of issues um, that people recognize 
that it exists, that it's an abhorrent practice, that there's no basis or room in our country, and that we've got to do everything we can to, one, prosecute the people who are, who are doing it, uh, and also uh, help the victims on the back end. And the State House, you know, worked across the aisle. Uh, we had conservatives, we had liberals, we had moderates, uh, and we're doing the same thing in Congress. I mean, you look at me uh, and Ted Lieu, of all people. I mean, we, we agree on almost nothing. Uh, and here we are uh, working on this human trafficking bill that prosecutors love because it helps them do their job. Victims' rights organizations love. Conservative organizations like CPAC or, you know, have sponsored it. Um, you know, it kind of politics makes strange bedfellows sometimes, but at least on this one issue, uh, it seems to be kind of uh, uniting both uh, conservatives, moderates, and liberals. Russell, the most recent poll, the only poll I've seen out of South Carolina, not including Ron DeSantis as President Trump at 58%, Nikki Haley at 30 Governor Haley at 30 um, at 2%. You've endorsed Donald Trump. You've helped um, Trump. You guys are kind of married to the hip when you ran when you ran for Congress. What do you make of that poll, and what do you think we'll see for the next several weeks as we lead up to uh, the South Carolina primary? You know, Ken, you've done this before, and, and, and you've, you've looked at the map, and you deal, you delve into these things, and you kind of go, you know, if I were Trump, what am I thinking? If I were Nikki Haley, what am I thinking? And I think the question is, if I were Nikki, what am I thinking? I mean, every poll shows her getting trounced in her home state. Um, I've said this before, and it's, you know, kind of a little quit, but it's, this is a primary in name only. We're just waiting for the day to be here so that we know the inevitable, which is that Donald Trump's going to win South Carolina. He's going to win Nevada. He's going to win on Super Tuesday. He's going to be our nominee. Uh, and he's going to, um, uh, uh, I think, based on polling, win the White House, assuming we mobilize and get, you know, make make sure that we get out and vote. I think that this, I mean, the, the Trump folks had, had, you know, shared some in, information with me. If you took Nikki Haley's best percentage, New Hampshire, 43.2 percent, and you apply that to all the states, um, she she only winds up, and that's her best state, New Hampshire. She only winds up with 12 percent of the available delegates to be the nominee. And so there is just no path forward uh, for Nikki. This is, you know, Donald Trump's doing incredibly well. This isn't a three-point game or a five-point game. I mean, there is a 30-point separation between the two of them, 20, 30 points. And, you know, we need to be coalescing now uh, to focus on the real challenge, which is removing uh, the incompetent occupant out of the White House. Russell, what last question. Congressman Russell Fry with us on Friday, F-R-Y-D-A-Y. What do you say to the never-Trump Republican? I mean, what, what is your elevator speech to someone who says, under no circumstance ever will I vote for Donald Trump if he's the Republican nominee? Look, I mean, I, I, I would just say this. Look at the record. Look at the, the policy record. You know, you might not like his – and most people, when they're never-Trumpers, they never talk about the policy. They just don't like his tweets. You remember pretty vividly three years ago and how things were and that gas prices were low and that we were never safer. The border was secure. Interest You could afford to buy interest you know, or house because interest rates were so low. You know, oh, if you don't like his, his chaotic attitude, well, maybe that lent him some success, which I, you, Ken, you and I agree on this, uh, that that chaos a little bit sometimes gave him an edge, gave him an advantage. Um, remember that. You know, you might not like that he's combative. It might not be your personal style. It's his style. And if Melania is not changing him, no one will. And and so he's going to continue to do that. He's going to continue to fight for the American people. And that's why I think 
the working class really gravitate to him because he's the first one that actually speaks the language. And not only does he speak it, he backs it up. And so, look, we, we are in a disaster of a mess right now with this president. Um, do we want to continue that for another four years under the failed leadership of Joe Biden, or do we want to start to right the ship? You know, Trump's got one term um, un, you know, under his belt, and he's got one more left. And so let's right the ship. Let's, 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 set, a, let's set these policies, re- reverse the Biden policies, and let's get back to doing what America does best, which is pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting the dang job done. Well said. Thank you, Congressman. Appreciate your time. Have a great day, great weekend, and we'll talk again in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Ken. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday's edition of Wake Up Carolina. Got our delegation. I don't have any idea if one, two, or three are coming. The invitation stands. They normally communicate if they're not coming. I've not heard from anybody, so we shall see. And they're in session. So it's more interesting when they're in session. You guys can call in and ask about specific bills or issues or whatever it is they dealt with uh, this week in Columbia. It's election year we're talking about. We talked to the congressman about, you know, President Trump. Um, We're hearing polls left and right. But you mentioned earlier this week about Trump's team because you you can see a difference in this campaign versus 2020 and 2016. There's not a lot of freeloading. There's not a lot of infighting. There's not a lot of leaks. Um, I went back and, and looked. In 2020, you had Ivanka Trump. You had Don Jr. You had Mark Meadows. You had Kellyanne Conway. You had Jared Kushner. You had Ronald McDaniel. You had Brad Parscale. Who's running the campaign? I mean, we knew Trump was running the campaign, but Trump's the candidate. Who's doing all the other work necessary to build a machine that, that successfully wins elections? None of those folks know how to do that. I mean, they're, they're, to me, I'm sorry, guys, they were a little bit hanger-ons. I mean, they, they were. I mean, they, they were all reputable in their own disciplines, but very few had ever, no, none. I mean, Kellyanne Conway is a an operative, but she's not a strategist. Brad Parscale came from Google. I mean, he was a kind of a digital guy, but he didn't, I mean, he was not intensely involved in, in politics. So you replace Ivanka Don Jr., Mark Meadows, Kellyanne Conway, Jared Kushner, Rona McDaniel, Brad Parscale. Rona wanted to be in bright lights. She's got some problems now we'll talk about as the, uh, as the probably next week progresses. But all of a sudden in 24, you got Susie Wiles and um, Chris LaSavada. That's it. And from what I'm gathering, and, you know, like Russell said, I've got some internal information. Well, I got a little bit, not much. I don't want to put myself on that level. But I've talked to someone who tells me, that Trump landed on these two and they decided to take the job if Trump is the candidate and let them run the campaign. They made a deal. Now, does that deal last for the ballots? I don't know. I mean, Trump can be very unpredictable. We know that about Trump. But when you had Trump and you had Jared and you had Ivanka and you had Don Jr. and you had Kellyanne Conway and you had Ronald McDaniel and you had Brad Parscale and you had uh, Mark Meadows, it, it just got trying to kind of a one-upsmanship. I'm, I'm speaking for Donald. No, I'm speaking for Donald Trump. No, Donald Trump said, I'm doing this. And from what I'm gathering, these two are, you ready? You ready? It's, um, it's 750, and I think we're, these are two political badasses that Trump has hired, and they don't take no junk. That's what I've heard.
One is a an experienced, experienced strategist in Florida. The other is a decorated Marine turned political consultant, and he's only got two. And they call the shots. And there is no infighting. There's clearly defined responsibilities for the team. Um, I've heard this, Rev. You ready? That they agreed to take the job after they sat down with the family and said, here's what we expect out of you guys. Your last name's Trump. Mine's not. You've got a lot more authority to tell me to walk out of this room. But if we're going to do this and be successful, here's how it has to happen. And you're beginning mm. to hear, you know, some of the David Axelrods of the world are now saying, this is a different Trump machine. I mean, this is a very different, even some of the establishment Republicans, the Karl Rove's of the world, are beginning to say things like, wow. I mean, this crowd, you never hear a leak. They don't many, make many mistakes. I'm not saying they control Trump. I'm not saying that. You're not going to control Trump, nor should you try to control Trump. I mean, that's the part of the campaign that is authentic. I mean, the guy says what he believes, and you do the best you but, can. But that's to, the balance. But 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 it's the discipline it takes to run extremely complicated campaigns. He's hired two of the best there is in the business, and he's told everybody else to stand down. And that's going to pay great dividends in the long run. Now, can Trump blow it up before noon today? Yes, absolutely he can. But I think um, as the campaign has progressed, from what I'm being told, Trump really trusts these two because it's playing out kind of like they mm-hmm. said it would play and out. And you can tell a difference. I mean, just from the outside looking in, I mean, it, it is, just seems more disciplined and focused, and his message and his speeches and his rallies are, you know, there's there's the bombast is there, of course, but there's well, also legitimate policy you know, proposals and ideas. And the thing that tells me there are no leaks, you don't hear infighting, and there ain't a lot of hangers on. Let's go to the phone. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Williams. Hey, Ken, um, tell me about the great policies that Trump had. The great policies that Trump had? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, 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 border, the border comes to mind. I think Biden um, disbanded about 13 or 15 executive orders that Trump made on the border and about six or seven on Iran. I mean, those come to mind, executive. And I'm not talking about, I mean, the president doesn't make policy. I mean, the president does executive orders, but, I mean, the, the legislative body legislates. I mean, that's where the policy comes from. But I think Trump, I think what Biden has done at the border and on Iran is extremely dangerous. Okay. Um, one president lost more jobs than Trump did. That was Herbert Hoover. Yeah, he lost 11 million jobs. Trump lost 3 million jobs. And when he left left last day in the presidency, he was 6.4% unemployment. So that's not great at all. And um, he took the woman rights of a promotion. One for Don McCain, they would have got rid of Obamacare. And this thing about feeding kids in school, how much it would cost South Carolina to feed kids in school. Uh, it, to me, it's not the monetary value. It's the principle of if you're going to have a kid, take care of your kid. Okay. You can't, if a woman decide she, she can't afford the kids, she can't get no motion no more. That's not so true, Williams. That's just not true. That's just not true. If a woman, 
if a woman want to, she can't feed them, feed the kid. She can't have abortion no more. That's just not okay, Williams. That's not true. I can't let you say that when it's just fundamentally on, dishonest. Man. A woman can yeah, have an abortion. Don't want to help, help take care of kid. If the woman don't have the right, say I can't afford this kid, so I got to do something. Okay. Okay, uh, I, I'll find out. Did you just admit it's a kid before it's born? Huh? Did you just admit it's a kid before it's born? If you say that, they're not going to let you be a Democrat long. Hey, um, it's a, it's a cross sock line. One red set feeds kids in, in school. Not one red set. That's a federal program. You understand what I'm saying? I do. Thank you, Williams. we got to take a break. Hard break, top of the hour. Appreciate you calling as usual. I think Williams said. It's a kid in the womb. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, okay. I mean, it, when you're elected official, when you're a highfalutin politician, I mean, you come stumbling in here at the last minute. You knock things out of the way. You <laughs> complain about the lights. You complain about the mics. And you got your own theme music. I mean, I work tirelessly for 20 hours a week. And I don't know that I have any theme music. But I'm not an elected <laughs> official anymore that has the authority to vote on, on certain things. We've got our full house. Um, all three of our delegators are, are here today. So um, welcome to Jordan. Welcome to Lowe. Welcome to, to Rick and Ba. Um, and when you leave, Mike and Jay, just check with Josh, and I'm sure he'll you know he'll honor your request, whatever you want your. Uh, James Bond for you, Jordan. Uh, Mike, what, what are you? I mean, just come up with a uh, – Jordan, you asked for little Spice Girls, didn't you? Uh, no, sir. <laughs> All right. No, no, sir. Was Donnie good. Osmond up there. <laughs> <laughs> I think my good friend here, uh, who's got control of all these microphones, uh, would, he suggested James Bond. I think that's a pretty good suggestion. Well, I, you know, yeah. I sort, of, yeah. sort of fits. Well, I mean, any, any, if, if a dude doesn't want to be a cowboy, he wants to be James Bond. Right. So I'm just thinking about just thinking about I it that way. Some people tell me over the time, you know, some of the Yellowstone people say I remind them a lot of John Dutton. Okay, uh, don't not sure exactly. Well, you don't <laughs> remind me of John Dutton. You may have others kind, but you don't have me kind. Okay, let's get down to serious business here. I want to I want to I want to get to the primary in just a minute. The Senate, Mike, I want to start with you if you don't mind. The Senate yesterday passed constitutional carry, so that's a done. I mean, the governor will have to sign it into law. Will it come back to the House? Okay, yeah. what, tell us what the Senate did yesterday, Mike. Yeah, essentially what constitutional carry will do is if you are a, of age an adult, an 18-year-old an adult, you will be able to carry a concealed weapon um, without the requirement of a CWP, the, the state's current uh, concealed weapons permit. So it's what our constituents have been asking for for many, many years, Um it's important to note that these are generally going to be law-abiding citizens. Uh, criminals have never asked to break the law, and then they go do it. They break the law. And that was the debate that was brought up over and over over the last several days. We stayed there till midnight Wednesday night, and, and some of the more liberal legislators are like, well, isn't this going to create the wild, wild west in, 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 in violence and in crime and in gun violence? And fortunately— um, for those who want to trade in theatrics, you can counterbalance that with data. And when you look at cities like Chicago that has some of the strictest gun rules, New York, San Francisco, I can keep going, Portland, where the crime rates are multiple times higher than they are in southern states in particular, in states that allow law-abiding citizens to defend and protect themselves, 
uh, you can show that it's the criminals who are able to do what they do without the fear of law-abiding citizens having weapons that allows them to do so much crime. So we finally passed this. It'll go back to the House, and hopefully it'll become bill or come, become law. Okay, Philip, you've been a longtime gun advocate. You're a big outdoorsman, love to hunt and fish and whatnot. Uh, that would be your constituency group. I mean, you keep tabs with those folks. They keep tabs with you. Are you comfortable as a House member with what the Senate has done? Yeah, they, they provide for some type of an education, a free education. Isn't that one of the amendments that was passed? Yeah, if, if you choose to take a training class. That's the way I read it. It's not mandatory. It's not mandatory. And the concern there was that, frankly, you got people who say, you know, well, which end does, does the bullet go in? And for those folks who want to have training, SLED will provide training for them. But if they don't want to have that training, <laughs> they still qualify to carry a gun. Correct. That's right. So, I mean, this isn't about hunting and fishing, obviously. Uh, it is probably, the concealed part of it is probably more about being able to defend yourself against somebody who may want to cause you bodily harm. But, you know, in the, the deeper message in all this is it was for tyrannical government, our tyrannical government, and governments uh, of countries around us who may want to take us over. But, you know, I mean, we're we're getting closer and closer to potentially civil war or something breaking out or complete control of of us by a fascist government. So we've got to be ready for that. And the more ready we are, the less likely they can pull it off. Jake? So kind of like Mike said, you know, we make laws and the bad guys, they don't tune in to SC, you know, ETV to turn on to see what the legislature do this week. So I need to comply. Uh, we make laws that fall on the backs of law-abiding citizens more often than not. Um, this is one of those situations. I, I think we handled it as practically as we could. You know, we passed the open carry bill several years ago. Um, we heard a lot of these same criticism years ago from the liberal left folks saying it's going to be the Wild West. You're going to have people, you know, it's going to lead to dangerous situations and more violence and gun deaths. And frankly, we just didn't see that. You know, I think you can look back over the last couple of years and there hasn't been this tremendous uh, problem associated with open carry. Um, I don't think, um, kind of like we were talking about a second ago, that there still should be training for those that want the training. And I, I hope everybody would get training of some sort, whether it be, you know, like my dad teaching me how to, the, the safety, uh, how to, how to care for and take care of and protect the firearm. And, um, and I've taught my boys and my kids that, and so there's some individual responsibility on those safety concerns, but if, I think the training should stay alive for those that want to go reach out for that. And then I think you'll see, um, I don't think this will be the end of that training because you have a lot of folks that want to have that training so that when they travel and they carry a firearm, they're in compliance with other states and you would still need that training to be in compliance um, with the other states in which you travel as well. Mike, is there any changing of what happens when you initially purchase a firearm? The background check. Um, I mean, was any of that tinkered with or this is post-purchasing the gun. Yeah, this is, and to my knowledge, this is simply in terms of carrying, um, who's able to carry. And in fact, now you do not need a, a state issued permit to carry a weapon. Uh, the federal laws that require a, a background check to purchase a firearm uh, were not affected at all. Does any of the federal legislation impede South Carolina's ability to do this, Philip? I mean, in other words, you're not, you're not, we're not addressing the purchasing of a firearm. I mean, there's still a background check, as Mike said. There's still all these things you got to do and fill out the forms and buy the gun. 
but does this does this conflict in any way shape? Do we expect a lawsuit? I guess is what I'm asking from the federal government. I don't think so. I mean, I, here you have to be what 21 to have a handgun. Correct. This changes but the age to 18, right? This changes to 18. You can carry it, but still, you may not be able to purchase it. So you that, know, that's kind of where I'm headed. There's still a little difference between the two, but it's a state's rights issue. And and that's kind of where I was headed, Jay. If the federal law says you can't buy a gun, but at a certain age, and the state law says, but you can carry the gun at another age, I mean, you're a lawyer. Is, is there a potential federal lawsuit coming? Well, certainly in that that um, scenario you just described, yes. And, you know, it's it's impossible to see around every corner. And in my experience, there's a lawsuit around about every corner these days. Um, so, but I do think we need to remember here, we're not the first state to do this. There have been a lot of a lot of states that have already gone down this road, and, and I, I'm not an expert on it, but have clearly established what you can and can't do based on what the Supreme Court has said you can and can't do on the issue. So I, I don't know that we're in danger of getting into a you know constitutional question on this, given that a lot of states have gone this road already. Mike? Yeah, to, and to Jay's point, he's exactly right. 27 states already have it. Um, and then to my knowledge, that's, that was none of the testimony we heard that there's any issue between the feds and the states. Let, let, let's stay in Phillips Lane for a second. He loves this like I do. We're both conspiracy theorists extraordinaire. Philip brought up a point that is becoming more and more mainstream. And it would have been it would have been talk radio shows host and talk radio show host only that talked about tyrannical governments. As you serve in the Senate, as you guys serve in the House, are we to the point now that you have to look at the federal government as somewhat tyrannical when you represent the people of a, a very red state who aren't very fond of federal government intrusion? Is that part of being a, a senator or a House member now, Mike? I don't, but it sounds it, crazy, and I accept that it sounds crazy. But but a lot of people are beginning to have that that belief. Yeah, I don't trust our federal government, um, especially in the last eighteen to twenty four months, watching the federal government's agencies be weaponized. Um, frankly, I don't have a tremendous amount of fear or trepidation because I think it's a a complete win loss proposition. Um, if the federal government or even a foreign government decided to to go to war with citizens, we lose. Um, you know, the all the ARs that we have and the handguns, uh, we don't defend ourselves against tanks and F-16s and F-35s, um, rapid, you know, rapid deployment teams. Um, I w- I'm more concerned about the guy who's going to try to break into my house because he doesn't want to go to work and he decides he's going to take what I have or what any of us have or who's going to accost our wives or our daughters while they're pumping gas. Um, that's, to me, the bigger threat. And we need to be mindful of the federal government, but ultimately um, the federal government has more resources um, than we could ever imagine. So when you talk about hiring tens of thousands of IRS agents, um, that concerns me because they can cripple us financially if they wanted to. And, and Philip, I, I think that's what – I mean, you, you're not arguing, I don't think, you're arguing that I'll hide behind this rock with my gun – while they drive around with a grenade launcher and a, and a tank. But there is the mindset that a lot of conservatives have, to Mike's point, about weaponizing government agencies. It's less about the gun and more about the psyche. But there's been a taking of states' rights, and the feds have been taking it over and over. But Washington is dysfunctional. We're supposed to have three branches of a government that are working. 
What we have is an executive orders. The, the minute you get a brand new president, the whole thing flips and it goes from this side and swings all the way far back to the left. You can see that, you know, the immigration policy that had happened. We've got the the courts that are now making decisions that we should be making as legislators. And so we elect people to go up there and it's completely dysfunctional. The Democrats and Republicans can't agree on a thing and Kind of rightly so, because you know that, that there's a lot of different between left and right right now. There's no bigger chasm that I've already that I've ever seen, but that's dysfunctional. And when you have a legislature that's dysfunctional, then you've got the whim of the court, which are four or five people who weren't elected or you know, making this final decision, or a president that overnight changes the direction of of the entire nation, the economy, and everything just swings back and forth, and and that's not healthy. But, but Jay, isn't that, I mean, you and I've talked on the air and off the air about this, some of the Jeffersonian beliefs about uh, judiciary, but, but judiciary becomes more prominent when we don't demonstrate the ability to legislate. Philip's talking about the executive branches here, the legislative branches there. They can't come to grips with whatever the issue is. They can't resolve, so it ends up in the courts. So we don't legislate, but rather we litigate now. And a lot of people in South Carolina are concerned as to how liberal some of these courts are, how liberal some of these judges are, and, and eventually you're, you're, you're not at the mercy of your congressman or your president, but rather some, I'm an eventual Supreme Court, but it goes through the, the, the judiciary. Well, I'll steal from these guys both. I think they both gave really good answers in that I think we have a dysfunctional federal government that I don't trust at all. Um, and then to your point, the, where, the way that the function of that is you end up in the courts. If you look back, I'd, I'd say two things. Number one, Thank goodness I live in South Carolina. Um, we are one of the states that we don't get it right all the time, but we have a, a, a different foundation than some of these other places that I could we, we could list and call out up in different parts of the country. Secondly, I'd say thank goodness for the some of the more recent appointments uh, to the Supreme Court by President Trump last time around. You're seeing, you know, while the, the federal government is completely dysfunctional, you're, and you are seeing what you described, Ken, where a lot of these issues are making their way to the Supreme Court, they're striking down and siding with more conservative principles, not all the time, but for on many issues. And that's a direct correlation to the, the people Donald Trump put on the Supreme Court. You know, I'll, I'll say this as we take a break, Josh. The death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of the biggest moments in recent American political history. It really was. I mean, you kind of got your quota and president is their quota. Trump got his quota plus one. Hmm. And that really fundamentally changed the um the judiciary, ah, let's say it, in our favor. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jameson in Spartanburg. Good morning. You are on with the delegation. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, quick question, and just uh, I guess before I get to that question, I talked to Ken yesterday about something that was kind of uh, started a whole conversation. But number one, just wanted to commend you guys for the work. Uh, this week, uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to, when I'm in the office, uh, keep you guys on the television. And uh, you guys are busy over in the house, Jay and Philip. And, uh, you know, who knew uh, trying to prevent minors from watching pornography was such a confrontational situation um, that it turned out to be. But you guys did a wonderful job. And, Mike, uh, 
you did as well over in the Senate. Uh, I say that way you too kissed late their butt. Wednesday Good night. enough. Move along. Move along, Jameson. Let's get to the question. All right. No, no, take your time. <laughs> we have plenty of time, Jameson. Good morning. J- Jameson wants one of those flags off the state house that Lowe keeps under his um under the boat seat of his um of his fishing boat. Continue, Jameson. No, I'm sorry. We have a couple of them, so, so we're good. Um, but no, did want to say that people, you know, I know most folks don't have time to tune into SCTV or whatever, you know, during the day. But uh, it was a very busy week for you guys, and uh, you know, I was joking with a, a Chairman Martin last night over text that I think what happened this week in Columbia should be required in all civics classes in South Carolina, just to see good debate about real issues with good faith folks with different ideas and finding solutions. Um, but anyway, the conversation that Ken and I kind of had started yesterday, and this all kind of got married together, I guess, was when we kind of saw uh, Majority Leader Massey's compromise amendment, so to speak, that did provide the funding and to make um, CWP training free for attendees, you know, which would cost, I think he said, around 4 to $5 million a year to the taxpayer which I think most of us agree that that's a worthwhile expenditure of taxpayer dollars. We have trained citizens. We have educated citizens. They know the law. They know what to do, when, what not to do, how to do this, how not to do that. So we don't have so many questions if we are going to allow this and kind of incentivize that process. And we agree with that. And then when I was also watching some of the House debate, you know, a lot of your um, – Democrat colleagues love to bring up this federal funding program for school lunches, that kind of thing, uh, which I know that's a whole separate entity and there's strings attached to that. But it did make me have, and I promise I'm probably to the right of even your House Freedom Caucus over there. Um, I've gone past the ditch and into the cornfield at this point. But it did kind of make me start looking just for my time working in the Senate for about four to five years of looking at the budget in just of last year, how we do spend money in South Carolina. And as conservative as I am, and as much as I agree with Ken on every point he makes about accountability, and it's not our child, it's your child. It's not we, it's you. That's your responsibility. And it is sad. But again, like I said yesterday, to quote Steve Spurrier, it is what it is. And as a son of a elementary school principal, as someone who's you know, dating a school teacher in Conway, South Carolina, I do see that need. And someone that spends Sunday afternoons at Costco getting bags ready for food because she knows her, some of her kids don't have food on the weekends when they're not at school. And so my question to you guys would be, I guess, and I know this is not a solution, this is not what we would like, is there something you think we could do about it, I suppose? And I guess my question mostly is, is a conservative just going through the budget because I'm a nerd. If we can spend 15 million, and this is as of last year, and Philip, I'm not putting you on the spot because I know you're also on Ways and Means, I promise. But if we can spend $15 million on a I military like museum and something, <laughs> $1.5 million to the South Carolina Aquarium, a million dollars to the International African American Museum, $500,000 to Spoleto in Charleston, where a bunch of people just drink wine and look at art. Um, Southeastern Wildlife Exposition, uh, three-quarters of a million dollars to a YMC summer camp in York County, um, $17.5 million to expand the Peace Center in Greenville, 
could those fund, would those funds not be better used maybe instead of expanding the Peace Center in Greenville to maybe feed a kid that, uh, uh, to no fault of their own, was brought into this world and maybe has a really crappy parent? Thank you, Jamison. Appreciate that, Mike. I'll let you. I'll let you go first. Yeah. First of all, Jamison, thank you for uh, such a well thought out question, uh, and it's a question that should give us all pause. Um, you know, I don't know exactly the, the budget numbers in terms of what's what's being asked for in terms of this this food funding program. It'll cost the state in the neighborhood of three million bucks. Three million dollars. Tell me if I'm right, Philip. Jay, am I am I close? Yeah, I believe it requires us to match the administrative costs. Uh, the federal government would pick up half, and we'd pick up half, and the total would be six. Uh, so we'd be responsible for approximately estimated to be three million. Okay, sorry, so it's, it's but not, that's, that's kind of the number. Okay, so it's not been legislation that I've seen. Maybe somebody could fill in the blanks in terms of what's been our state's position and, and why we would decline it. Does anyone know the answer to that? I, I, I don't it's even think it's state okay. legislation. It's, it's a federal program that the state is required to match what the federal government will pay for in administrative cost. Correct. We, um, under the program, I think it provides um, food for uh, summer months to, keep to children um, and then up to, I think, a few hundred million dollars, I think, is the, the, the cap. Um, but we would be responsible for 50% of the administrative costs associated with, you know, making sure the food goes to where it's supposed to go. So my understanding is the governor is the decision maker on whether or not we participate in the program, but it would fall to the legislative branch as being the responsible party for the budget to then fund whether if he said, yes, we're going to participate in the program. He said, no, we're not. So then we don't, it doesn't come to us. It's a little bit like the Medicaid match, Philip, back when Nikki was governor and refused yeah. the Medicaid match. That's what it is. It's the same thing. It's the federal government spending money they don't have, sending it to states with strings attached, the things that we're all opposed to to begin with, for a good cause, for the children. You know, so we all have to roll over and say, well, it's for the children. Let's, let's do this. Well, McMaster said no. And look, I think they're already getting food stamps, right? Well, they're I mean, already getting the money. My argument is being. The, what are they doing with the money to feed the kids? Just because it's summertime, they can't feed the kids now? Well, Mike, and, and I'll say this in front of all. I mean, while you guys are in Columbia making law, I am um, moving the masses to believe what I what I kind of believe. And I'm, I'm kidding around there. I mean, I, I try to engage an audience, and, and, and I don't have any attempt to enlighten. My, my issue Fundamentally and philosophically, guys, nobody wants children to be hungry. Nobody wants children to be hungry. But the federal government is is trying to find a solution to a problem that they, in essence, created. I mean, the federal government on one end says to a, 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 a young parent of a child, your financial abilities are better if you don't get married. I mean, if you have this kid, we will incentivize you to not get married. Now, that's not in the contract, but that's what they do. I mean, the federal government on the other side says to a young woman, um, you got married. Here's what life looks like if you get married. Here's what we can do for you if you don't get married. And it gets even better if you have a second kid and a third kid. And all of a sudden, the federal government believes they have a solution for the problem that they created. And my, my philosophical bent is you're enabling the problem to become a bigger issue. Let's fundamentally address. You talk a lot about this, the breakdown of the family the lack of responsibility in the home. I mean, that has to be a part of this equation. I get what Jameson is saying. I believe all three of you care, 
about young children. Nobody wants a kid to go to school hungry and unable to learn. But but at some point in time, the federal government has to say, no, people have to figure it out on their own. And and I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I understand the complications, but but I, and I'm not letting these guys off the hook. It's not their decision to make. I mean, this is the governor's decision to make. And if the governor decides to participate in the program, then you guys got to get to work and find $3 million to match the administrative cost of of, of, of administer or half the money to administer the program. That sounds like a lot of administrative costs as far as I'm concerned. Let's take a break. Um, but that's, that's, that's a real philosophical question and less policy. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Some of the, uh, some of the off-air interviews are, are, are the best interviews, talking about Davos and who needs to go and who doesn't need to go and godlessness <laughs> and all these other sorts of things. Somebody talked about COVID. And the, the 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 feeding the children program is not COVID. I mean that that's that's an existing program. The governor decides yay or nay. If he decides yay, these guys have to get to work and find some money, and and somebody goes without. Now I'm, I'm not saying what you should or should not spend the money on. During COVID, there was an enormous attempt to keep employers connected with employees, and the government turned a lot of businesses into quasi unemployment agencies. You can't run your business, but here's some money to pay your people to not come to work every single day. It created enormous debt within our federal government. You guys are working on an unemployment bill. Am I right, Philip? I mean, you know, ways and means. I want to get your take on where you are and what you hope to address. Yeah, there will be a bill next week. I think Wednesday we'll probably take it up. And Wacky Wednesday? W- wicked Wednesday. Wicked Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, wicked. It's when we roll out stuff that we can take a long time to talk about. And so Wednesday's a good day for that. So anyway... If if the economy is good and unemployment is low, then we would reduce the number of weeks that you would receive unemployment if you got unemployed during that period of time. Whereas if the economy is bad, then it would swing. It could swing from twelve weeks up to twenty weeks. So if it's bad, you could get up to twenty weeks. And basically, it's kind of a an, an incentive for industries and all to come to South Carolina, putting a business type of a climate in there that makes sense. And the the rub is going to be that some of the rural areas who don't have really ups and downs, they just have a bad economy all day long, you know, and somebody loses a job there, they can't really find a job. So that's going to be the argument back and forth. And Jay, it's, it's accepting the cyclical nature of an economy. Certainly. We, it's we've always all, been that yeah, way. We've all, we've, I think everybody in here has lived long enough to see good times and bad times. And, you know, um, I kind of think about your slogan, takes Mondays to make Fridays. It's a little bit of, you know, we, we're thankful for the, the harvest, but be, be prepared for the famine when it might come. I like this because it, it puts a practical, you know, app, uh, situation in place that when jobs are aplenty, <clears throat> then people are encouraged to go to work. We've seen that problem over the last few years. There's, Jobs available, but nobody wants to work. This takes uh, that into consideration and creates a program moving forward. You know, I, I also, as you said before, Ken, the safety net versus the hammock. You know, this keeps in place a safety net for when folks have problems and takes into consideration when everybody's having problems. But it also says when times are good, you need to get to work. And, and Mike, that is kind of the yin and yang of where conservatives very often find themselves, small government, but at times people do need assistance and government is there. And I think I've always said as much as I don't like it, it's the only entity capable of, of kind of stepping in and filling that void. 
Yeah, and I hadn't seen the bill yet. It'll go to the House first, and if they pass it, it'll come to the Senate. But I think it's important to recognize that the end game of a job isn't simply to make money. A job has other attributes and value that is good for people. Um, the discipline, the consistency, um, the toil, and then the reward for that toil um, shouldn't be discounted. So if I will give you $10 versus you will work and earn $10, how you see that $10 is very different. That's why most of us in this room, I'm guessing you did what I did. Is Our son and our daughter at 16, they were working. They didn't need to work for the money to feed themselves. They worked because work has value to it. And biblically, it explains that if you work, you eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. It's never predicated on. And if you don't want to work, the government will take care of you so you can eat. So I'm okay with the safety net for somebody who may just falls on hard times, but it's meant to be a temporary stopgap measure until they go on to the next job because work is important and it adds value. Um, we got about six or seven minutes here. Josh, we may go to 50 <clears throat> to 54, take the long break at the top of that, depending on how the conversation goes. Just being courteous to the producer who has a responsibility that I don't, um, and I have to stay on time. So um, I talked to Robert Cahaley Tuesday, Monday. Monday, talked to Robert and asked him what his sense of South Carolina was at the polling. And he said, I don't know because I've not done any data since DeSantis got out. I will, but he's not done it yet. But we did get a poll yesterday. Minus DeSantis, Trump's at 58, Haley's at 32. Surprise, not surprise. What do you make of that, Jordan? I think that that feels about right. Um, again, hard to say exactly till you see the actual data produced, and Haley would be someone I would trust to say he knows what he's doing and would give us reasonable, reasonably close data. But I think that's that's kind of what I'm seeing at the state house reflected in uh, so many state representatives and senators are, are getting on board with President Trump, you know, recognizing he's the one prepared to lead. Uh, it's interesting to see, you know, I came along, started serving the House at the end of Governor Haley's time in Columbia. Uh, it's interesting to me how her narrative in this process and race has changed so dramatically. If you go back in time, you know, as a former ambassador appointed by Trump and uh, someone who spent some time in the Oval Office with President Trump, she wasn't critical of him. Uh, until extremely critical of him until it served her interest at the end here. Now she's got, that's her lane now that Christie's out and everything else. So it'll be interesting if, if South Carolina, you know, likes that message at all to this point, I'd say 30 plus percent is not liking that message. Yeah. 58, 32 is a big number in the home state. Philip. I like what you said earlier, but six, if it went 60, 40 in the rest of the States, she would only have about 12 delegates or 12 points, whatever, you know, in the convention. So. She's been begging for a one-on-one, this one-on-one time. I don't think she's going to get any type of a debate. So she's going to ride on her record here in South Carolina, and and Trump's going to run on his record. And I think, you know, the 60-40 type numbers about what we'll see. Um, someone said, we did a bit on Newsmax, and a guy named Todd Starnes, I mean, I think he respected the fact that we do know South Carolina. He asked me to give a prediction. I said 60-40 on her best day, 65-35 on Trump's best day. Mike, you think I'm at the ballpark? I think you are. What I think is most fascinating to me is, you know, DeSantis dropped out because he's got a job to do. He's got to go run a state. Tim Scott dropped out. He's a U.S. senator. Uh, Nikki's got time on her hands, so I, I guess I understand why she's staying in it. But the, the acronym that I 
was taught early on when, when I'd ask my parents for money is, you know, you, you sure do like OPM. That's other people's money. And I'm intrigued by the folks who know that it's coming. It's, it's going to be a beatdown. But they will continue to let her use other people's money to the tunes of millions and millions of dollars to get shellacked. Jay, what does that say? I mean, you, you can't read minds. I can't read minds. I mean, I guess some people in the world have so much money, it just doesn't matter. I mean, they've made billions in finance. They've made billions in industry. They've made billions in whatever it is um, they've done. So when Haley is convinced by a consultant that you can win, I mean, you don't think she can win. Philip, Mike, I don't. Rev doesn't. Josh doesn't. I mean, I think there's a shellacking in the waitings. Um, but there are really bright people who have made enormous amounts of money who are willing, to Mike's point, to continue to fund what seems to be a hapless camp. What is the psychological dynamic there? Well, and I am asking you to read minds to some degree. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think most people recognize the a, a lot of times the industry that is sort of behind the curtain when it comes to politics. Conservative Inc. I mean, there is a whole industry, a built multi-billion-dollar industry out there that is essentially supported by the continuation of campaigns in general, not just this one, but all across the country. Um, I mean, not, and not just consultants, consultants are the one dispersing the money, but there's money going out to media outlets, to advertising, to, you know, boots on the ground, you name it. There's a lot, a lot of money involved in this process. And there's people are making that money or the ones giving advice on, we need to continue this process. So what exam, what, what exactly are we expecting to hear from those folks. And, and Philip, to that point, if you refer to a candidate as a disruptor or a wrecking ball and your entire billion dollar industry is predicated upon, we don't need a wrecking ball. We don't need disruption. We need things to run as they always have. You could get a little bit confused about the, what the data clearly says, but what is most at risk. They have something to lose. That's why a lot to lose. That's right. They have some money to lose. And, and they're worried about a wrecking ball. I'm worried that the wrecking ball ain't big enough. That's interesting. You see, see, and that goes back to my comments about disruption or destabilization. I mean, I think there's some people, Mike, I think we all consider Trump a wrecking ball and a disruptor. That makes some people nervous. Doesn't make me nervous. I'm kind of like Philip. Bigger the better. But there's some out there that believe he has the ability, if elected again, to destabilize these these these, these situations that some people have gained enormous amounts of wealth. I'm not talking about, you know, getting rich and going to the beach. I'm talking about getting rich and go to South of France, go to the beach, go to go wherever you want to go on your own Gulf Stream. It's an unfathomable, to Phillips, um, it's an unfathomable lifestyle that is at risk if it gets destabilized. Yeah, and while there's probably some merit to that and, and what that function of this destabilization would do, I don't think any greater threat to our nation is what happens to our with our destabilization with the, the southern border. If we continue to allow our southern border to allow 10,000 illegal immigrants to cross a day to where 50 illegal immigrants on the terrorist watch list alone last month were caught. That's how many were caught. So how many more got through that didn't get caught? You want to talk about destabilization? See what happens as we continue to allow hundreds of thousands of illegals and folks on a terrorist watch list continue. So if, if that's going to, if, if destabilization is our concern, we better focus our attention on our border. Stay out of South Carolina. You illegals get shot by an 18 year old. Um, 
<laughs> I say that a bit, a bit tongue in cheek. Anything else we missed? I mean, anything you guys? We got a couple of minutes here. Anything you want to add? Um, how long we got? got two I'll minutes. About two minutes have and a call? five seconds. Yeah. I'm sorry. Let's go to the phone. Uh, Joseph in Florence, you are on with the delegation. Got about a minute and a half or so. Hey man. Hey. So um, I think Ken set you guys up for the whole week with the way that he he goes about topics. Uh, I think that's pretty good to even say. But um, going back, and I might even sound like a like a cold-hearted person because the last caller was like, hey, feeding the children. Um, but I, I, I was calling about, you know, like the gun thing here. And, and to my understanding now is that we're open and closed or open and concealed. Um, you can do that, right? Is that correct? You already have open, yeah. Concealed yeah. is what we're voting on now. Okay, okay. So – it's not even just voting on the concealed part of it, but if you really think about it is like the state of Maryland, they just came up with an insurance. You got to carry insurance for, I think it's like $315,000. Um, and, uh, people vote on the stuff and it, in, in, in my opinion, just my opinion, I think that takes the rights of, you know, uh, what the founding fathers really thought of, you know, carrying and, and, um, owning uh you know a weapon so how are you guys uh going to uh affect you know those kind of things from happening you know from from like hey the, con- the constitution we got about 30 seconds answer philip the constitution says shall not be infringed that means don't do anything to restrict it. now we we have an age limit and that's probably some common sense there but other than the age limit and felons shall not be infringed, needs to be adhered to. Okay. It's the Constitution is yep. what he says. Appreciate you three. We'll take a break. We'll be back in about a few. I think Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evett will be with us in the next hour. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I want to give Josh a big thumbs up on the bumper music. He's begun to appreciate the music of the late 70s and early 80s, which created this very imperfect human being <laughs> that I am. Um, I mean, I know we've got the best music. Because my three kids have Hotel California and Born to Run on their uh, on their iTunes, oh. and I don't have any mm. Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam or whatever it is. Well, that's a good thing. And uh, in their generation, everybody's losing their mind over Taylor Swift, and I don't understand that. I mean, I, I just don't. I mean, is are they really in love? Is it really a romance? Is it is it is it a, a psyop? I don't have any idea. And don't care. I mean, I just don't. Guy can play tight end. She sells out venues to put on um, entertainment shows. That's good enough for me. We try to make everything a conspiracy. And guys, you know me. <laughs> you don't have to twist my <laughs> arm, but so hard to get me to go right. down, to get down that road. But I've landed with that situation, really good tight end on a really good football team. And a, uh, a young girl who was a country star has become the Madonna of this generation. That's kind of the way mm-hmm. that I um that I cast that. And the NFL sees a chance to you know, make some money on the deal. Well, I mean, I've told you money's the answer now. What's the question? <laughs> so, yeah, if the NFL and Taylor Swift can both promote themselves simultaneously, that's what they're going uh, to do. So we've been, you know, for several days, we've had this discussion about, you know, feeding kids. You know, nobody wants kids to go hungry. But I think you've kind of framed the debate less about uh, dollars and cents and more about a full philosophical well, I mean, you debate. don't want to, we got the lieutenant governor with us i think pamela evett is with us good morning ma'am how are you 
Good morning, Ken. How are you? I am well. So you would have an opinion of this, I'm sure. I have tried <laughs> to argue, and Henry, excuse me, government master, has decided thus far to not accept some of the federal incentives to feed children um, who are going to school malnourished or not ready to learn. I think it's, I mean, Jay and Philip and Mike were here a second ago talking about the, the federal government pays $2 for every $1, but still a $3 million expenditure for some of the administration. Pamela, I've, I've argued that it's less about hungry children and more about a philosophy of government. If the federal government incentivizes young women to have children, and by that I mean you, you, you get a check from the government if you don't get married, and you get another check if you have another kid and don't get married. In other words, your financial situation is better if you're a single mom having kids than it is if you're married because the government kind of steps out of the way then, and all of a sudden that kid goes to school and they're hungry. We're not solving a problem. We're enabling a larger problem to fester. Am, am I on to some Philosophically, where do you land in that? So, Ken, you know, I'm, I'm with you on this one. I believe it's the governor. You know, the governor and I talked about this a few days ago. First off, we have no idea what that program entails, right? Just like the federal government is, they're just famous for, is here, let's give you this money, and it's just the carrot. And then you find out after what it all entails, right? What is it really going to cost us? How many people does it take to maintain it? it you know, what what impact is this going to have? Um, and, and that's where we are. You know, we have no idea the back end of it. I think we have 80-some, 80 85,000, last time I looked last week, jobs looking for people. And I've argued, you know, I sit on the Hunt Keen Fellowship, and I argue this point with everybody, is that if you want to change the, the complexion, the look, the feel, the ecosystem of any area, then work on economic development. If you want to make people's lives better, because money is only a bridge to solve a problem. It never solves a problem. And so it's, it's taking people who find themselves in a bad situation, use the workforce scholarships, use all the means that we have to get you certified, we have great jobs looking for people. I was out at Volvo last week to, to witness and, and kind of see their training center that they've done with Do. I mean, they're going to be hiring a whole second shift of people that they will train that is a great paying job with great benefits. I mean, I think there's, there's just a better path forward that gives you self-esteem and that really helps um, break a cycle that we, you know, we talk about that all the time. We have to break these cycles that continue to happen in our country because money is running out. I don't know about you, Ken, but but those debt, those that debt limit is getting higher and higher, and it's it's almost like play money anymore. It, I mean, we might as well call it a bazillion, right? Because nobody knows what that is because we can't even comprehend it. Yeah, it's somewhat of a supernatural number. We've declared a trig and a supernatural number. We think we know what it is, but we honestly have no comprehension nor clue. I want to I ask you a question because I'm always concerned about this. South Carolina has grown exponentially over the last decade and a half. You've seen it. I've seen it upstate, along the coast. Um, I don't want to say it's been disproportional, but certain areas have enjoyed the benefit of growth more than others. But very often, governmental leadership believes, okay, we're growing, nothing else to do. 
I mean, you know, kind of build it and they will come, and we build it, and now they're they're coming. I'm arguing that we compete with other states, and other states are always thinking about how to make their business climate better. Are there things you think about, um, Governor, that you believe would? I mean, obviously we're growing, but we can't rest on their loss. Are there things that you consider and things that we need to be thinking about to make sure the next 20 years is is growth like the past 20 years? Well, yeah, I think we we have to make sure that we have enough insurance carriers in our state, right? Because uh, insurance is is a big issue. We want to make sure that there's lots of competition because when you have lots of competition and lots of choices, then you have lower costs. Uh, We want to make sure that we have, we protect what is driving people here. We want to make sure education continues to be on the rise here in South Carolina. I think you're with me on this issue, Ken, but correct me if I'm wrong. I'm for full school choice. I am. I think parents need to be able to control the destiny, the educational destiny of their children. A hundred percent. And I think we spend so much time uh, in the legislature trying to make laws that uh, make sure that people, that big bureaucratic systems aren't teaching, aren't saying, aren't doing things that will adversely affect our children. You wouldn't have to do that if you had full school choice, because as soon as you as a parent or I as a parent saw something going awry with a school, they're not teaching or they're teaching things that they shouldn't be teaching, that money follows the child. You pull that student out and you move them. Those are the kind of uh, opportunities, educational opportunities that parents are looking for. And and we talk about, um, you know, all you know, we need to attract business, but you're absolutely right. We need to continue to cultivate um, our trades. We need to make sure that we get the message out to parents that our technical schools are not second-tier options anymore. You know, people used to view them that way. They never were second-tier options, but people viewed them that way for a long time. And I think the light bulb is finally going off that these are great paying jobs. And our technical colleges, you know, I, I was in Germany in September of last year. And I think you mean you may have talked a little bit about this, but I went there excited to see like how their technical colleges uh, operate because I always heard they surpassed ours. And Ken, I'm here to tell you that we are leaps and bounds ahead of German's technical college system. So I think we, we have to work on creating the workforce tomorrow. Nobody's going to want to come here if we don't. I am starting a huge, well, I've been, we're going to work a little bit more closely with do. We got to get our kids working again. Right. If we want to develop the workforce of tomorrow, it has to start with soft skills and you get those in those first jobs. So our 15, 16, 17 year olds all summer long when they're sitting at home making us crazy as parents, let's get them out working, It's teaching them soft skills. It's teaching them financial responsibility. I mean, you can't understand what the value of a dollar is if you've never had to give up going out with your friends, doing something fun because your employer needed you. And you had a responsibility to be there. One of the issues that I think will define the winners and losers over the next 15 or 20 years is economic development. You talked a little bit about that. And I think some of these states have really decided to go all green. I'm not opposed to renewable energy. I'd love to see a very diverse power grid in South Carolina. How concerned are you about our long-term planning and providing affordable and reliable energy? Some of these states, I think, are making very reckless, careless decisions, and South Carolina could benefit if it doesn't make those same reckless and careless decisions. Ken, you're 100% right on that. You know, again, being in Germany last year, energy is a huge issue for them. 
their three big issues are energy, immigration, and workforce. And does that sound familiar? It's the same things we're dealing with. But last year, they saw their first drop in GDP ever, 1% drop. And it's because they made such poor choices on energy uh, that businesses, for the first time probably ever, were moving out because they need – when you're a business, you need your energy to be affordable and reliable. And that went to the wayside in Germany. And so we should learn from that, right? <laughs> and, you know, here the governor started Power SC last year because we we're already starting the decision, working hand-in-hand hand with Duke and Dominion and Santee to figure out, you're exactly right, how do we diversify our grid? Um, we have to look at everything. We have to, but first off, we got to get rid of the Biden administration because I was out at CMC in KC last year, and it just, as an accountant, as a business owner, I mean, it stopped me in my tracks when they told me that when Biden, the Biden administration shut off the pipeline and restricted natural gas, it caused their energy prices to go up a million dollars a month. I mean, can you imagine having to absorb $12 million a year because of a bad decision like that? So we have to make sure that, again, we make it reliable and affordable that we put all options on the table. I'm like you. I think the market should dictate exactly where we go with with everything we do, right? That's what we're all about. It's capitalism. If people want EV, if people want to go green, that is great. But I'm proud to say that in South Carolina, we will never tell anybody what they need to do. And I think that's the difference. Last question. Um, a lot of folks have asked me, why so many South Carolina politicos are supporting Donald Trump and not former governor Nikki Haley. My response is, I don't think it's anything personal with Nikki, but rather a, a commitment they made to the voters. And the majority of their voters are very supportive of the America First Agenda and President Trump. Did I speak for Governor Evett and some of these other officials uh, wrongly, or is that a, a correct representation? No, Ken, you are absolutely right. You know, I've been supporting President Trump since 2015. So this is this to me is just a continuation of my support and loyalty for him. But and when I say loyalty, I mean it in the sense of I believe that on day one, he will know what to do. And, and can I, I won't speak for you, but, you know, I came from the business world. And when I became lieutenant governor, I mean, that first day it was kind of like, all right, what do I do? Who, how, I want to make an impact. I want to help business. I want to get out there. Who do I call? What are the right people? Tell me who the players are. Um, how do I start this process? We see where our country is. We see where our world is. Not only does President Trump have good policies that are proven policies that put money back, uh, back in the pockets of South Carolinians, but he knows what to do on day one. And that's really important. I think that's the piece of this that I wish people would talk about more. Uh, when I was at the Palmetto Bowl with the president, I said to him, I said, Mr. President, tell me what you would want me to tell people um, right, from, right from your mouth, what you want to do. What do you want to accomplish? He said, on day one, he said, I'm going to close down all of our borders because we can't fix the problem until we can figure out the problem, right, and how bad it is. We're going to shut everything down, and then we're going to turn on our pipelines. He goes, because natural gas needs to start flowing again, and that will change drastically so much that's happening in our country. He said, and on day two, we're going to have to look at who's here and who needs to leave. 
And uh, and I said, Mr. President, I don't disagree with you. I mean, we don't know who's here. We saw the horrible attacks on the streets of New York, uh, you know, illegal immigrants assaulting police officers. How horrible that their governor, you know, didn't say right out of the box, deport them, get them out of here. They have no disrespect. They have no respect, full disrespect for our laws uh, and for our law enforcement here. And so I think the president has good ideas. I think he's a brilliant businessman. Um, and I think he's the calming force that uh, will put fear in the hearts of our enemies and will give comfort to our allies. I know he gives comfort to me running this country. Well, we appreciate your time this morning. The one th- the one luxury you didn't have to tolerate nor suffer through was presiding over the Senate. So I envy, <laughs> I envy your term in that regard and in that matter. Thank you for joining us. And I think you're going to join us once a month from here on. So um, yes. thank you. We really appreciate that. Well, Ken, you guys have a great day. Remind everybody, please remind everybody that voting in our primary is a Saturday. Everywhere I go and talk about it, people are still astonished. Like They're like, no, 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 that's the wrong day. That's a Saturday. We really need to get the word out that the Republican primary, presidential primary, is on February 24th, and we need to get every Republican out there to vote. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Ken. We will take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Would someone bring us a gift? Yeah, let's um, let's take a call. Mm-hmm. I want him to get back his truck so he can hear us open the gift. Okay. Is it already open? Uh, it is. He said, "Don't open it until we get on the air." On the air. So he got. It looks like he brought us some shirts here. Okay. And normally we're giving away the shirts. Let, let me see. See what it says. Well, I got to unfold it. What okay. does it say here? Everyone watches women's sports. <laughs> no, everyone doesn't. No, uh, everyone doesn't. But you're going to let's see. Are they both look like? A, yep, they're both XL. So there's okay. yours. Everyone <laughs> watches women's sports. Okay. See that, Josh? This is very cool. This is very cool and very thoughtful, yeah. and um, and very conniving. Yeah. And I know the um, yeah. the person that gave us the shirts, and yes. it would be. He would be the sort. He's, he's, he's taking a jab at my disdain. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to say this. I want to be clear. I don't have a disdain for women's basketball. I have a disdain for Gamecock Nation using it as an excuse to be good at something. Be good at football, damn it. <laughs> Stop being good at women's yeah, basketball. Be good at football first. Then if you want to be good at women's basketball, yeah. go for it. Let's not prioritize women's <laughs> basketball. We're really good at women's basketball. Josh, did you know that? We're really good. The Gamecocks are probably right now the best women's basketball program in America, period. I mean, UConn had their run. They're still good, but they're not as good as the Gamecocks right Number now. Number one. I mean, South Carolina right now, and I think anybody could, you know, right now they are the best women's basketball program in America. Guess what they are? They aren't the best men's football program in America. And it's hard for me to be happy about women's basketball when you're not good in men's football. I like that we're good in men's basketball. I like that we're preseason top 25 in in baseball. I kind of like that we beat Clemson in men's tennis. But none of that really matters (laughs) when you're not good in football. That's just my perspective. I certainly respect the the pansies that feel differently uh, than I do. Maybe we've got, <laughs> maybe we've got a different sort of pan, uh, fan base. 
Maybe, I mean, you know, let, let's, let's stay here for a second. You ready? You would agree with me, I think, that the SEC is famous for being a bit outlawish, being a bit renegade-ish, being a bit killer-ish, right? I mean, you would agree to that. Yeah, sure. I mean, the NCAA color, I'm excuse me, the SEC colors out of the lines probably more than any conference in America. You don't have to color out of the lines to women win in women's basketball. If you're going to win in football, guess what you got to do? You got to color out of the lines a little bit. And I just question whether we're accepting as as accepting as we should be of our cosmopolitan state flag university mm-hmm. coloring out of the lines. News flash. You ready, Tiger fans? You folks color out of the lines. <laughs> and, and you win championships. Y'all always <laughs> colored out of the lines. You know what else? I know it. <laughs> And I am so mad that we don't. (laughs) I am so angry, angry as you could imagine, because you can win in women's basketball not coloring out of the lines. You can't win in college football without coloring out of the lines, and that takes kind of a little bit of a killer spirit, (laughs) a killer attitude, uh, a bit renegade-ish and outlaw-ish, and we've just never exhibited those qualities. I told Rev, I got invited to the SEC championship game. I was lieutenant governor, and I got invited to the SEC championship game, and I got invited to a dinner one night with some trustees. It would have been the night before the SEC championship game, and I'm out there, and um, I'm probably breaking every campaign vial. I, I didn't care. It didn't matter to me. I'm, it's obvious I wasn't real big on that campaign finance side of things. So I'm out there with friends of mine, as a as a dignitary, there you go. I'm I'm a dignitary. Yeah, you're a big so I'm deal. hanging out with the big deals. I'm hanging out with the big shots. I get invited to go to a dinner at the. Um, I'm trying to think of where it was. Is it the Georgia Congress Center? I mean, isn't there something attached to the old? Uh, I mean, it's that the Mercedes right. Benz Arena now, but it was the Georgia Dome is where the game was. And there's some venue. I mean, it's a huge complex, and there's some building attached that had some um some space, and there was a kind of a, a big dinner that night. And all the trustees, all the SEC chairman, the SEC representatives, uh, the college university, the member institutions, board of trustees were there. I mean, it was the Gamecocks in Auburn. That would have been the Cam Newton team. But I remember um, one of my buddies on the board at USC introduced me to two members of the Alabama board, one member of the LSU board, and two members of the Auburn board. And when I got back home, I took nine showers. (laughs) I mean, I shook their hand, and I'm serious. Both their jacket pockets were full of cash. You won't convince me it wasn't. They were serving booze, and the jackets had kind of a sag look to it. So I said to myself, they don't have liquor in their pockets. What do they have? And then I realized it's the SEC. They've got cash in their, in their jacket pockets. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going home and take nine showers. Why? Because I hung around with the board members from Alabama, Auburn, and LSU, and that's just what you do when you hang around with those scoundrels. Mm-hmm. Who do what, Rev? What do they do? They win, they win championships year after year. They don't just color out of the lines. They color off the book. I mean, you know what I mean? They, they just, it's, um. oh, there's no line there. Tennessee's response to the NCAA. I mean, it's a lot of lawyer talk, but you know what it says basically, guys? I mean, the Virginia, I mean, University of Virginia was founded by Thomas Jefferson. So they've got this a little bit prestigious reputation. The SEC guys would say a little bit. I mean, it's a lot. They don't think they're crap sticks. But um, 
So, so it's a little more dignified in their response to the NCAA. Tennessee basically said, I mean, I'm sure they paid a, a highfalutin lawyer $500 an hour to draft the response letter, but it basically said they could have paid me nothing. And I could have said, I read the article, I read the response, I've read some of the legal opinions. Tennessee basically said, NCAA, dear NCAA uh, important person, you can kiss our big orange ass. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what it says. You can kiss our big orange ass. We do things the SEC way because it just means more. 843-661-0937. You remember, this whole thing started uh, last week. So the Everyone Watches Women's Sports shirts were delivered to us this morning. And it started last week because we were talking about Gamecock women's basketball and we, you would acknowledge that they had won the game against LSU They're really the night before. Good. They are really, really good. And and I said, yeah, I watched the game. And you that, got into the game. You cheered. I, I did. And, and I you was told you. You admitted that you did a kind of a fist pump. I did when one of their players made a play. Yeah, when they came. I from think behind. she left the ground. <laughs> right. I think she may have gotten airborne for a second. I think so. You may be right. And but that almost stopped you in your tracks when I said, yeah, I watched the game. It was a good game. And you're like, you. Did not just well, say you that. lose your man card. I mean, to me, you do. You're one of them now. So, so that just started this this whole thing about women's basketball. And, and, and Mike Britt is a, is a listener and a good friend. And Mike, who called to defend me. me on the air that morning. Well, I mean, Mike's a fellow Gamecock, and we bumped into one another at USC events over the years. And and I've given them a hard time about being women's basketball fans, and they'll tell me, well, I mean, I want to be the best at something. And at some point in time, you give up, you know, on the other sports. And we found something that we probably are the best at. So. Here we are. Uh, 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the shirt. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. Now to uh, Mike in Darlington on the phone. Hello, Mike. Oh, hey there. Yeah, you're going to have to color through. You better have some heavy paint. You're going to color over them tigers and volunteers. (laughs) (laughs) But you, uh, yeah, you definitely got to get out of the lines. And I I don't, I don't. The Gamecocks disappoint me year after year. I, I just can't stand it. But I, I, what I called about, and uh, everyone's gone now, but I wanted to ask them what, if anything, was being done to utilize this uh, huge physical plant that the states and counties and all the school districts and municipalities have, these school buildings that go unused for 20% of the year. And uh, I, I, and I, I thought there uh, we recognized that there was a great need for remedial education for some of our students to get them up to par and up to grade level, and of course uh, for an advanced placement for other uh, students that might want to advance a little faster through uh, high school and uh, go on to tech or college as it may be, but um, I didn't get to ask that. And I'm, I just wonder if they think about that. And if you're talking about feeding children, it uh, if they're going to go to the school to be fed, then perhaps uh, they could uh, catch up on their reading and math skills. Thank you, uh, Mike. Appreciate that. Uh, once again, we're talking about radicalization. We're talking about radical reform, radical reorienting. I don't think, I mean, I, we're talking about education as if it's just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I personally think education is another example of government intervention leading to less of a product that needs radical reform. 
It's almost like we, I don't know, we, we've disciplined ourselves into believing that it's too radical. It's too outlandish to believe that we can do the radical things that need to be done to change these things that have morphed into basically government bureaucracies that underperform. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is David in the PD. Hello. Yeah, where does uh, women's beach volleyball fit into the equation there? Well, that's a different story. Now, they can jump. That's, I can, that's, I've witnessed that. They jump and bounce uh, and all kinds of things. They, yeah, they jump and yeah. bounce. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, I, I give William some credit now. And, oh, don't say no, Joe. Yes, yesterday he was in Michigan. So y'all count how many times he's in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. My man had he his hard hat on backwards, David. Did you see that? Yeah, hey, he, we got the strongest economy in the world, and that's what he said. And and the lieutenant governor just came on and said Germany's they're in like some kind of one percent recession. This that I guess he's telling the truth for one time. Yeah, we got the strongest economy in the world, but we want to have the strongest economy for America. And I was thinking about uh, the political media expectation business. You telling me Nikki Haley what? I think you said Robert's got a poll was fifty eight percent, thirty two percent. No, that's a, that's a poll. Not Haley's. He won't have one until next week. But the only poll that we've seen without DeSantis has Trump at fifty eight, Nikki at thirty two, and that would have been a Wednesday poll. Okay, so that means if Nikki gets, if Trump beats her fifty four to forty six, I guess she's surpassed the expectations. But. I was thinking about this. I'm looking at her schedule. She was in, uh, I think, Hilton Head yesterday. And those are those people, I call them Giuliani Republicans. I think you said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm stealing your term, Ken. That's fine. You, you, said, uh, you said they're less Jesus-y. I think she's going to be in Lancaster. Uh, you got to say that one right because you don't want to get people upset. But that's a suburb of Charlotte now. And I think she's going to be in Daniel Island, and that's kind of what where Breeze lives down there in Mount Pleasant. This is a community that really has only been established in the last 25 years or so. So those are some of those new Republicans. So you see where she's camped out at. She's trying to get that, but the political media expectation business, that's what she's trying to please and the people that are supporting her campaign with the money. So y'all have a good weekend. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Um, I mean, it, there's no doubt that South Carolina, with all this, it's probably, you ready? I mean, I don't know if all the New Yorkers are coming or the folks from New Jersey are Catholics. I mean, I'm, I'm being, <laughs> I'm making an assumption here. They probably are. Um, it'd be more merry than it is Jesus-y, right? I mean, the, the, the Catholics place big prominence on, on Mother Mary than, uh, than Jesus. So between Mary and Jesus, you better have your feces consolidated and have your story straight on that before you can expect to win a Republican primary. I'm being a bit facetious. Please don't take me literally, but rather take me um, figuratively. There is a difference. There is a difference in women's beach volleyball and women's basketball. Mm -hmm. Take a break. Back in a few. I got to give my man Josh. Josh has had something happen in his life that has got him a little bit uplifted, and he's really nailing. I'm talking about nailing the bumper music. (laughs) Killing it on this Friday, my good friend. You Let's doing go. that on purpose, Josh? Or I don't think he knows that Springsteen. <laughs> I didn't. I thought no. it was, uh, what's that movie, Grease? That's what I thought it was. <laughs> well, you did play Grease <laughs> yeah, a second yeah, ago. Yeah, I played that last yeah. hour. <laughs> Grease is the word. Yep. Let's go to the phone. Uh, cocky Mike, who I assume is uh, in his truck heading out of here. Hey, Mike, you there? 
Thanks for the shirts, uh, by the way. What? Some people have no gratitude whatsoever. Ken or your mama would slap you across the jaws if she knew how mean you were to me. After I bring you gifts, you call me a pansy with no man. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, I called you misguided. <laughs> so, so, some of the others are pansies. You're not a pansy, but you're a bit uh, misguided. That, that, you know, that $3,000 Gucci outfit that Dawn was wearing? I believe she had that embroidered on the back. I may be getting my games mixed up, but that that slogan everybody wear, watches women's sports. Dawn wears that. Oh no, that was a sweatshirt from the week before. Dawn <laughs> wears that, and I said, "Oh, that's cool." And then I saw it in a couple of places, and the first person I thought about was, "I got to throw some money away on something that Ken Ard will never ever put on his body." So. <laughs> And so I had to get you that shirt. Hey, you know, you're talking about – let me let me explain. <clears throat> why why would you latch on to women's basketball? You remember a couple of years back, you went, I went, we all went, we loaded up, went to Madison Square Garden to watch Gamecock play. That was not a national championship. But I knew, I knew that was the, the closest I was going to come because I can't go to Omaha that I was going to come to be able to watch a Gamecock team perform at the highest level and possibly make it, they make the Final Four. Because I, I ain't got much hope for football ever get, especially now with NIL. I know it's not going to happen. So, But uh, the women, yeah, I do watch them. I watch them all the time. Um, I don't watch every game. But I've been to probably 20 games because a friend of mine's got Floor well, let me ask you this now. In all seriousness, I'm told by people like you who are lost yep. um, <laughs> that this is the best team Dawn has ever had. Yes or no? I think it is. I think it is. I've told people that this year that I think this may be this may be the best team she's ever had. And, you know, when they played LSU, um, and I know you watched that game. Don't you lie and say you didn't. They didn't lead that game until late, but – I could tell that they were not playing aggressive at all because they knew LSU would. And sure enough, LSU's big guns fouled out, and they were in foul trouble, and we were never in foul trouble. And then all of a sudden, with five minutes left, boom, 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 and they, they take control of the game. And Dawn's got – I mean, it's, this is a good team. But, Mike, I she's kind of done what Krzyzewski did at Duke or or or, or Calipari's done it at um right. at Kentucky. I mean they kind of pick who they want, right? I mean That's right. of the top 10 women basketball players in America, she gets about 20 to 30% of them every single year. Yeah, and she's got a white girl this year. Yeah. This is her this is Kip's second year on the team, but this is the first and I've said this many a time. This is the first white girl Dawn's ever recruited in her career at South Carolina, 16, 17 years, whatever it is, that would be a starter. I mean, she's had the quote-unquote, and I'm, I'm sure somebody's going to call me out on this, she's had the quote-unquote token white girls on there that were usually local South Carolina products, and they would be on the team, and they would get one minute, five minutes a year, eight minutes a year, and not get much, but the – She's got she's got a white girl on the team. I'm impressed. But I'm telling you, this is like the old Southern Cal. You remember Southern Cal back in the day? They didn't recruit. They just said, okay, all y'all come in. We'll pick out who we want of all the best students and, you know, players in the country, and the rest of y'all, y'all go somewhere else. 
Uh, they didn't have to recruit. People just begged to come, and they're doing that with Dawn, too. So Good deal. I wish it were football. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the shirt. And, I mean, that's a very thoughtful mm-hmm. of, a, of a good friend and a good um, listener to Wake Up Carolina. Mike and I go back before Wake Up Carolina um, as Gamecock fans. And it is frustrating to kind of um, want to be that good at football that it never happened, and you latch on to something that they are dominant in. I mean, they, there's no doubt about it. They are a force to be reckoned with in women's college basketball. Time for some Takes Mondays to make Fridays trivia sponsored by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. I've got my life water and Celsius combo. Looks like urine, but it ain't. That would be my marketing slogan if I were to try to mass <laughs> market. Pass on that one. This um, <laughs> looks like urine, but it ain't. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, well, I mean, it, it does. Am I right? <laughs> Get an insurance policy or already been test for steroids. Uh, if you ever played sports, you test for steroids. Uh, okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> most Americans know, not all, but most Americans know that George Washington was president number one. Some know that John Adams was president number two. I think more know than Adams, Jefferson was president number three. My question today is who was the fourth president? of the United States of America. Make you think a little bit. The fourth president of the United States of America was 843-661-0937, our number. First correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. Do we have a call? Hi, you're on. What's your guess? James Madison. You're right, James Madison. Who is this and where are you calling from? Sharon from Pamplico. Karen, sit tight. We'll get you back to Josh. Um, bumper music, Josh. He, he may he may deserve the name instead of no shot, Josh. Bumper music, Josh, today. Yeah, uh, Washington, eight, uh, 1789, 1797. Adams, 1797, 1801. Jefferson, 1801, 1805. And again, at 1805, 1809. And then the Madison years started. He was elected, uh, sworn in in 1805. He didn't leave the presidency until 1817. He liked it. He might have been one of these guys suspicious about, you know, do we need to go back to the kingship and have somebody in charge eternally or until they until they pass away. Been a lot of fun, and I mean this sincerely. I want to thank Pepsi, obviously, for sponsoring um, this show. And, and, I mean, they don't just sponsor guys. They partner, and I mean that sincerely. The majority of our sponsors – or not simply sponsors. I mean, they buy into what we what we do, and they want to be a part of this. And um, and I don't want to divulge secrets because I don't think I can legally. But we did exceedingly well in our ratings, and none of this happens without you. I mean, the salespeople can now go out and and tell the sponsors and partners and and potential sponsors and partners that hey, a lot of people around here listening to this nonsense, but it's not not. How can nonsense be not nonsensical? I think we've done a decent job of being nonsense without nonsensical. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, There's something to ponder well, I mean, it's this a feeble, But I mean, think about today, guys. We had a member of Congress. We had three members of the General Assembly. We had a lieutenant governor of South Carolina, all within an hour and a half of mm-hmm. one another. And I'm proud of that. I'm mean, very proud. But none of that is possible if not for sponsors and partners like Pepsi but more than anything, the listenership. And it was obvious in our book, Ref can divulge what we can and what we can't. Uh, you folks 
are very gracious to us. It was and a good report. And we certainly do appreciate you. Absolutely. We thank you more than you will ever know. Uh, at least I know I've got another year of, um, of being gainfully employed. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.